Good evening, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. Welcome to your Wednesday night philosophical smorgasbord extravaganza. Um, we have a lot of callers tonight. Um, I won't snap my depends, but you can be fairly confident that they are right below camera angle. So um, thanks so much for joining us. Please don't forget that. Yeah, it's like I'm a it's like I'm an astronaut driving cross country. <laughs> I don't know. That's a very obscure media reference. But anyway, um, uh, I hope you're having a great day. Please, please remember to come and help us out. February, uh, not April, is the cruelest month. February is the cruelest month because it's a short month for uh, those of us who rely on donations. But yet, you still have to pay the same amount for the stuff, even though it's a short month. So if you could help us out, freedomainradio.com slash donate. That's where you go to do that thing you know you need to do, (laughs) you know, those um, 500 to a million, 500,000 to a million people out there, if I could just get 10% of you, say, to go and donate to us, then uh, I could replace this white backdrop with uh, an aquarium, a giant aquarium. Yeah, that would be a good use of your donation dollars. (laughs) Um, Pole dancing. Um, Wrong show. Sorry? (laughs) Wrong show. I could I could put on my very own YouTube version of puppetry of the penis. Google it and be afraid. And um, yeah, so I mean, we always uh, are looking forward to your donations. They do keep the uh, philosophical fires burning. It is important for our enthusiasm. It is important for our bills, our food. And um, I think it's important for your conscience. So freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. And uh, let's move on. All right. Well, Toby is up first today. Toby wrote in and said, until recently, I had always had massive anxiety when talking to new people. This show helped me work on that, so now I hardly get anxious at all. However, I still do get anxious to the point of a kind of paralysis when trying to compliment people and when trying to ask a girl to be more than just friends. Why do I find it impossible to ask a woman out? Impossible. That's 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 a big word. Uh, But I understand where you're coming from, Toby. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, okay. Um, Hi, Stefan, first of all. Hi. Uh, I just, I'm quite nervous. I just want to point out to start with. um, uh, No, no, this this show helped you deal with all of that, so you don't have that anymore. You probably just. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the irony. (laughs) 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 Definitely. Now, um, yeah, all my life, I kind of. I very much struggled to start a conversation with anybody. It, it would be kind of as crippling as going to the store and trying to like buy something, like talking to the person behind the till. I just, I kind of mutter like, "Can I have this?" And then, <laughs> and then kind of an awkward situation would arise with in my head, which wasn't really awkward at all. It's just you know buying something. Um, yeah. So, but re- but the show kind of helped me work out. A bit where that's coming from, and and uh, I went to um, I'm in university, and I went to the counselling that they offer, and they kind of the, the the sessions I went to there helped me overcome the kind of um, just a day to day conversation sort of thing, uh, just starting them up, uh, feeling more confident in myself with them. Um, I just want to say too, Toby, yeah. I know how hard that stuff is because I mean that was. I, Social anxiety was a huge problem for me as well. I'd get, you know, panicked in lines at the grocery store kind of thing. So I know how tough that is. And I just want to say, 
you know, uh, sorry that that was going on for you, and I'm glad that things are better now. Right. Th- thanks. That's uh, good to hear because, uh, you know, sometimes without somebody else saying it, it feels like you're just being a bit silly. But well, it's, it's certainly yeah. incredibly isolating. You know. Yeah, definitely. And then talking to someone else about it when you're socially anxious to begin with is uh, seems like an impossibility. So <laughs> therapy in that way, I mean, it was huge yeah, for I mean, me in trying to... Here's how to overcome your fear of heights. Jump off a cliff. <laughs> Isn't there a step I can take? Anyway? Exactly. exactly. We got to help you overcome your fear of sharks with sharks. <laughs> no? Is, exactly. That's what, it, that's what it kind of still feels like for this kind of complimenting and this uh, talking to w- women, um, it it feels like that it's such a big step to take from nothing to doing it that I don't really know how to get there. And I, I'm still not really sure what exactly is why I'm finding it so hard compared to other people. Um, I also want to mention that I think a lot of people that I know might have, maybe to less, a less extent, but a similar sort of experience but their solution is to just drink lots and lots of alcohol. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that about the sort of laddish or loutish behavior that goes on in England. Uh, the the alcoholism, I've always assumed, has a lot to do with social anxiety. You've got a whole lot of people on a very tiny island. And the fear of causing offense is, uh, you know, most, you know, give people a British, British people a checklist. Would you rather A, be struck by a giant meteorite or B, cause offense to someone in a social situation? Uh, and um, not a lot of pens would end up on the B. Uh, most people would actually, this, even the contemplation of it, they just stab themselves in the ear with the pencil. But um, it is a very uh, rigid uh, society. And of course, a lot of that comes from the fact that there's still aristocracy at the center of society, which creates this whole obsequious court climbing social ugliness that goes on and uh, a lot of politics in British socializing. So, um, yeah, I mean, if, if you're going to have social anxiety, you know, there's countries where you probably want to be to get over it, like Hawaii or Jamaica, I think has a lot of natural herbs that can help medicinally with with that kind of issue but england where you're basically your only choice is uh don't go anywhere or go places drunk uh if you have that kind of issue right yeah it's, that's nail, nail in the coughing sort of um that's not the right term but yeah that's definitely the situation it's, hit the nail on the head in the nail on the head that's the one i'm looking yeah. for <laughs> yeah it's 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 um it, I mean, especially in university, the, the, every single social event almost pre- requires you to drink a little. And and that's tough, too, because if like I, I think I've gotten drunk maybe three times in my life and not since I don't know, a couple of times in my I was sort of 17 and twice, I think, when I was 17 and then once at a party, an after cast party for a play I was in. Um, when I was maybe 21 and since then and the problem of course is that if you don't drink and other people are drinking well they the idiocy of the entire exercise is pretty pretty open to you right pretty yeah exactly yeah you you have to drink to keep drunk people interesting (laughs) yeah that's that's definitely it like um I mean that's especially true with kind of uh girls and things as well like some of the girls if you were drunk then yeah they'd look amazing you know um but if you're not drunk they're just kind of i mean they look almost childish because they're drinking so much they're just 
They're slurring the, the words. Woo girls. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Woo girls. <laughs> yeah. I have to have a low cap top so the boy has something to throw up into that won't drip into my shoes. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, that is, that is rough. In England, uh, there is a, for those who don't know, I mean, especially around sports, and I mean, there is just a, a big drinking culture. And it's not like in a lot of places, drinking cultures are, you know, they, they're kind of uh, not socially acceptable in a lot of ways. And so it's there, but it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I got so drunk last night. It was a real mistake. And so and people may go and do it again, but they're not bragging about it. And they're not like, you have to drink. What are you not drinking for? You know, they're kind of like, well, I guess I had a bit too much or whatever. But in England, in certain social circles, I mean, it's aggressively like, why wouldn't you drink? Don't you have a penis? I mean, like, it's 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 not like, uh, well, we may be doing the wrong thing here, but I guess I'm just an addict. It's like... <laughs> You must drink. Like, what on earth else could you be doing with your time? Yeah, that's really interesting to hear because those are the only social circles that I've been in. So literally my entire experience of kind of socializing is that kind of an idea. As soon as I say, oh, I don't really drink or I don't drink. Or let's get together without alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You want... You want an orgy? No, no. I just said, <laughs> let's get together without alcohol. Oh, I don't think alcohol. we could handle that without alcohol. <laughs> what, we're supposed to cut our fingers off with pliers? No, no. I just said, let's get together without alcohol. And it's like, I don't think that we we can't get to the space station. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's just incomprehensible to people. Why would you get together without alcohol? And, yeah. and the reality is that alcohol is a great, I mean, shouldn't say great. It's a widespread method of conquering social anxiety in other words if i erase the need to be interest by getting everyone interesting by getting everyone drunk then i don't face and then of course what happens is then the more people use that crutch you know the less the strong their legs are so the more people engage in that kind of binge drinking and social drinking the less able they are to have conversations with people that are interesting and uh, rich yeah I, that, and that's one of the big reasons why i try and avoid it yeah, you're you're not alone, Toby. You're you're not alone. You're just obvious, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, right. Yeah. And am I guessing that? Uh, do you know if if you're uh, in your family of origin, was there any challenge around comfortable social mixing? Like we all we all have it sometimes. I mean, and I won't get into me, but I, I just remember the first couple of times I was in a professional environment, you know, like my boss says, oh, let's do the cocktail party for investors or whatever, right? Uh, and it's like, okay. <laughs> like, I didn't know. It was all new. It was all new. And there are, of course, times when everybody feels awkward socially. Uh, you know, you walk into, um, I guess I don't want to give you palpitations, but you, you walk into a, a gathering of people who are all intent in conversations with each other. And your your hope is that you, you stand near someone and hope that you find something of interest to hear that maybe you can comment on or hope that some kind Good Samaritan uh, opens up the social hoop uh, and lets you into the inner circle and all that. But, yeah, we all face those from time to time. But um, so was there anything in your in your family life uh, in, in your childhood, do you think, that may have inhibited uh, comfortable and relaxed uh, social interactions? Uh, yes, <laughs> simply. I mean, I've had a look at this a bit before for kind of the general anxiety that I, I've kind of conquered a bit. Um, it was a very win-lose sort of situation in my family. 
there was no um no no spanking no hitting but lots of uh, kind of guilt tripping and uh and and my mum could mother could get very angry as well um mm-hmm. if we didn't do what she said especially later on not so much when i was younger but um i should mention that my parents are se- uh, separated for the last 4 years and as it came towards that they were both increasingly um short tempered uh and it would kind of be i was very argumentative as well um i mean i it's one of the reasons i love the show is i love kind of exploring the the topics un, unsaid which is quite a, it was quite a dangerous thing really to do in my family not because they'd like attack me but they'd attack they definitely attack my ideas it was not very accepting um sort of atmosphere right. well and i also think i'm sorry to interrupt but it just it just struck me and i wanted to share it toby that you said that your mother was uh guilt guilt tripped right that was her <laughs> it's a, a travel agency of one and we only go to one place it's a guilt trip and it's it struck me that social anxiety seems to me potentially related to growing up around people who had a habit of feeling ashamed of you or because guilt trip has a lot to do with I'm shaming you. I, I, you know, I know shame and guilt aren't identical or whatever, but um, in order to make someone feel guilty, you have to uh, make them feel that they have violated a moral standard that they agree with and they had a choice in doing so and they knew better and all that kind of stuff. And if you grew up around people who are ashamed of you, it's hard to think that you have something to offer strangers that even your family didn't value that much. Yeah, I can. I think I follow that. So then, yeah, okay. So <laughs> sorry. Uh, and of course, uh, divorce is divorce is a failure of social skills in many ways as well. Negotiation and empathy and uh, uh, looking at the taking the long view and uh, all of that. Yeah, well, this is what I've. Luckily, the one thing that my parents are quite good at is they will now talk to me about these sort of things. Um, although my mum will get very upset sometimes, um, which is, again, kind of trying to deter from the topic. Um, but I do kind of... There is kind of the idea that they... The reason... Like, I never really learn the social skills of win-win because they don't really know the social skills of win-win yeah and, and guilt trips and shaming are definitely win-lose right really oh sorry i was just saying social yeah like, yeah definitely shaming and, and, that's, and guilt kind of the language and that, that's, that's win-lose right yeah and i, f- I think i mean one of the, uh, one of the reasons i was so um scared of talking to new people um i think is that I thought I just want to be moral and good but because I only kind of knew these kind of win-lose situations I felt that if I talked to them I'd create a win-lose situation so I'd be wasting their time or I'd or wasting I'd say, your parents so that would be lose to them um sorry what was that sorry do you, you said waste their time did you mean your parents time or someone else um just kind of everybody in general but I think that was learned from. Oh that. no! I, I okay. I think, I think I understand. I think I understand yeah, what you're saying. You I think I yeah. Let me give you a little ramble like and, and tell me if, it, if it hits the spot. Yeah, yeah let, me, let me give you a tiny ramble and, and, and see if it hits the spot. So, we have a habit, those of us from 
challenging childhoods, we have a habit of assuming that if there's something wrong, it's it's us that's wrong. And and that is uh, it, it's a good place to look. You know, it's a it's a good place to look first. Like if you have a repetitive problem in your life, childhood is a good place to look first. And maybe it's probably not the only place to look, but uh, it's a good place to look first. Now, with something like social anxiety, it has often struck me that I, I can make people quite uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I don't make you uncomfortable. Is that is that fair to say, Toby? Yeah, not at all. You, um, the opposite, in fact. <laughs> you oh, you're relaxing. Okay, good. Really good. relax it. And make good. Sense take off, take off yeah. your pants. Um, so. <laughs> Not that relaxed. Okay, well, another few minutes. <laughs> uh, hot breath on the web. Fog it up, baby. But um, it may not be entirely a personal deficiency on your part that it's tough to connect with people socially. For instance, if those around you are relentlessly into the avoidance of anything meaningful or deep or resonant or important or philosophical or moral or anything of substance and if you are naturally drawn towards things of substance you know like we have a short amount of time in this world let's not spend our whole time the short time that we have and let's not spend our whole short time on this world talking about things that don't matter and that's one of the things that i remember a lot growing up was um my mother for all her faults <laughs> she did have a pretty fascinating circle of friends when I was younger. A lot of them were like Germans who seemed to, I mean, I think more, even more so than Australians. Australians just travel the world forever because I guess it's so expensive to get off the rock that uh, they just, they travel forever, you know? And and Germans after the Second World War traveled a lot too. And, and she would have these German hippies come through and they were pretty freaky. And they all seemed to be looking like, you know, John Lennon plus Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> equals uh, love child. Uh, and, you know, they didn't always smell exactly like the air around them. But in their own weird way, they did talk about some pretty deep issues. What is truth, man? What, what even is reality? Now, a lot of the answers that they gave were, you know, bubblegum nonsense, you know, like, uh, what if, what if the solar system is just an atom inside another solar system? <laughs> like, yeah, what if? <laughs> But, uh, you know, people, children are still being hit in the world. But anyway, I mean, so, but but they did, I do remember sitting there, this is back in the day when when the adults were talking, you just basically didn't talk. You, you absorbed, you listened, which I think is underappreciated these days um, because uh, yeah, children learn uh, adult conversations by watching adults have conversations. And if the only thing that adults are doing is talking to kids, uh, then they don't see that. But they did actually talk about some stuff that was interesting questions. Again, I thought their answers were, you know, <laughs> uh, a, a post-Platonic font in an Aristotelian thunderstorm. But I don't know what that means, but it's just <laughs> not meaningful, not grounded. It was just, what if, you know, like, uh, what if? Uh, what if you were I and I and the walrus and cuckoo cuckoo? <laughs> a lot of it was pretty nonsensical, but they were interesting questions because I would go away saying, well, that's an interesting question. I don't think they have a handle on the answer, but it was certainly some interesting questions. And compared to the British people that I spend time with, 
which were resolutely, um, I remember reading this years ago, uh, a woman who's, who nicknamed her mother uh, Bit of Cheese, Bit of Ham. That was her elderly mother. Because, you know, she would call her mom up and her mom would want to tell her, you know, what she'd had for breakfast and, uh, um, and, and, and then what she had uh, done a little bit with her morning, you know, tidied a little dusting. And then uh, what she'd had for lunch was bread with a bit of cheese, bit of ham. So a bit of cheese, bit of ham. That was the level at which this woman was conversing with, with her mother. And anytime she tried to draw her into anything slightly more meaningful, it was um, impossible. It was like trying to take some giant helium balloon and push it underwater with your chest hair. I mean, it just wasn't happening. And I remember my friend's parents were always fascinating to me. I had a friend whose mom, once in the entire decades that I knew her, opened up about anything, you know, just talked a little bit about her history. And her, his grandmother, who was, I mean, <laughs> ancient even by my standards now, her, his grandmother used to be, I, I only found this out once, like there's this weird eclipse, except the light comes through once in a while. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, she once, because I was always sniffing around and digging and poking and looking for any kind of connection with people when I was a kid. And once the grandmother told me that she used to sing for the troops in the war, in the Second World War. And she was singing some Vera Lynn songs to soldiers who were in a burn ward and most of them had been so horribly burned that they could not possibly clap and the only way they could show their appreciation was by hissing through their teeth and she said she felt like a snake charmer because she was singing to all this hissing <laughs> and and it's like it opens up you get a glimpse at someone's personhood, their history, there's something that means something to them. And then a little bit of ham, a little bit of cheese comes in and eclipses this moment. And I remember thinking, by God, if I could only have a show where I could do this more than one day. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so the reason I'm sort of telling you this is that your social anxiety may be other people's depth panic, if that makes any sense. Right. That story is interesting because it reminds me a lot of my um, granddad. Every time we would visit him, he would it'd be very much, you know, just kind of the standard how with everyone, check everyone's okay. Um, but one time we visited and he showed us his um, his badge from the, the war he fought in World War II and um, told us about how he landed in Norway. And you did just get this sense that of a whole hidden history that I just had no clue about. And wouldn't you like to know more? Yeah, exactly. So many people, they, they die and they fall into the ground and all of their stories and all of their histories and all of their details just pour into them. You know, it's like, it's like throwing a kite with a beautiful tail that goes on forever down an endless well. The kite slithers in, the body falls into the ground and all of the ribbons and all of the stories go pouring in. This, uh, my friend's um, mother, uh, who told me about her first marriage and, and, you know, how difficult it was and all that, died of an aneurysm and uh, all gone. All gone. All of the facts, all of the knowledge, all of the stories, all of the history, all of the patterns 
that could release us from this wheel of time, from this wheel of cycles of history. All of the knowledge that could have broken the wheel and turned it into some sort of intergenerational jetpack to a different future, all gone. All gone. And I think that's just so tragic. And uh, did, did it happen often with your grandfather? Did it, was it just one time? Or? It, was li- it was only this one time. One time! And it's like, how? what do we have to do as a species for these planets and make these planets align more often? Ah, only connect, as E.M. Forster said. Only connect. And we dissolve mortality through connection. Anyway, so if you're interested in a show like this, you know, you're interested in deep topics. And I can already hear, oh, everyone, everyone around the planet. And they let me, let me give you their zombie chant. <sighs> let me get into character here. <sighs> I have to get smellier. Hang on. I have an eyeball dropped down <laughs> my cheek. Uh, uh, you can't be deep all the time uh, uh. yes that is true <laughs> you also can't exercise all the time but the alternative to that is not spending your entire life on the couch anyway um, you can't eat all the time oh so you're never going to eat again uh i'm a zombie we only drink brain fluid i don't know and vote <laughs> but uh so so it could be i'm sorry i don't mean to eclipse but but it could be this um, depth panic, be, be surra- being surrounded by depth panic, people will go into their histories like a one-time pearl diver. Go down, get the pearl, come up just before you run out of oxygen, never go back in the ocean again. And it's, you remember these things, don't you, from, from people that you've known where you get this <laughs> open, <laughs> close, right? Yeah, and it's really, the interesting thing about that is especially with younger people, I find that when you eventually sometimes do get the opening, it all comes out and you get this massive flood of everything like oh the blurb yeah the blurb (laughs) (laughs) wait i ate something four years ago (laughs) hold still (laughs) actually that also works if they've been drinking a lot but anyway yeah that 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 gets quite difficult for me as well because then i'm just like i have no idea what to do in this situation i mean i can ask questions i can always ask questions but no, but that's not being visible, right? The blarp is in erasure of the other. Right. Because, I mean, I think, I mean, tell me what you think, but I think that we're sort of bouncing back ideas here. We're both present in the conversation, right? Yeah, definitely. This is more present than I felt in a lot of conversations. It's, it's yeah, I mean, we're both modifying our thoughts and sharing, you know, bouncing back. The blarp is, you know, don't blink. I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. This and, and the people who blarp are always incredibly able to see the inner yawn, which some people can occasionally see with me, <laughs> the odd interview. But anyway, you know, when you, you yawn inside your mouth, you, you become a bullfrog. And yeah. the, the lower like, comes out and you yawn inwards. Gaping chasm inside only. But so, I mean, obviously, I mean, if you have the social anxiety, I get that. But do you think that if you were able to, if you had no interest in deeper topics, would that be easier for you? Like if you had the constant paddle of drivel that <laughs> that seems to be, that people breathe out, it seems more than CO2, you know? Uh, I used to call it, how about them Jays? Because Jays is like, the Blue Jays is a sports team right? in, uh, in Toronto and Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, were uh well they're the the hockey team and um 
So uh, yeah, they last won the Stanley Cup. I think it was 1966. Mike, can you just check that? I think that was the case. I don't think they've won it ever since because Toronto is still standing and it wouldn't be if, if they won ever since. And, you know, I, I, when I was first got into business, I had to learn some things. I had to pretend that I knew anything about sort of professional sports. And you learn these couple of things like, oh, yeah, I remember this guy came in and he, he realized that he could still sell tickets even if they didn't win. So he stopped buying as many great players. And you, you, you say that in a Toronto business community and it's like uncorking the speaking in tongues at certain uh, religious ceremonies because people just start talking about it. And so I just I had to learn like five or six things like uh, – so-and-so has done such and such a thing in sports that is, and people are like, they're on it like piranha on a fat cow. And um, yeah, because, you know, the only other alternative is to try to get them to know them as people. And a lot of people don't really like that. 1967, sorry, 1967. Yeah, I know. I, I definitely relate to that. I wish I was interested in sports or television shows or um even like talking about the lectures we go to, that's what most of my conversations end up just being. Oh, what was that lecturer like? Oh, what was that lecturer like? Oh, did you enjoy that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, oh, we've got what, course working like next the week. Of it. Yeah, it's just there's just there's just nothing. We're just both saying things we already know, just for the sake of opening our mouths, really. And and those conversations, don't you find that those conversations, um, there's a, almost a built-in lull that is terrifying. I think there's a seven minute lull and every seven minutes in conversations, there's a bit of a lull, but it sort of feels like you're both there trying to squeeze out toothpaste from an empty tube. And sooner or later you just give up, you give up. And then there's this awkward silence and you're both desperately trying to think of something to say, but nothing is happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. That happens every time. <laughs> and that, and that's the nuclear ground zero for social anxiety, right? We've, we're yeah. both still here. We're not talking and we don't even know what to say. Yeah, definitely. And that is, it's almost like the initial anxiety, which is the strongest, is kind of in anticipation of that moment. Like it's gone through this pattern so many bef times before that um, even it knows that even beginning a conversation will lead to that place. So then that place is so like frightening that the whole system shuts down of that makes any sense because because that place reveals the totalitarianism of the everyday the censorship of the everyday right i mean i don't think that we're having much trouble chatting at the moment are we no uh, no definitely not i'm struggling to find words but that's just the but but no i'm definitely finding this a lot easier i can actually talk say what i'm thinking which is yeah i mean we're batting ideas back and forth and sharing experiences because we're not, we're not confined. You know, if you want to talk about social anxiety, this is a great place to do it. At least I hope. You know, I mean, there's there's nothing that 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 is taboo in this space, right? In this conversation, right? And so, whereas with most other people, it's like, oh, don't know if I can say this, don't know if I can say that, and um, and, and that grinds its way down to exhaustion, right? Yeah, and. Yeah, exactly. It's just every social situation. Uh, I actually find that that's really interesting because I do find after I've been in kind of a social, lots of social situations, I do just kind of need to go and recuperate almost. And, like it's, <laughs> it is like physically, not physically, it's mentally exhausting. Yeah. I had some friends from America over 2013. I had some friends from America over and I was like, 
I want to do a video on George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, (laughs) I mean, you can see, I mean, if I had had enough coal, I could have put it up their asses and made diamonds. (laughs) (laughs) What do you guys think of that situation? I'm afraid you're going to have to talk to my diversity lawyer, who unfortunately is unavailable at the moment. The politically correct police and unable to provide a translation that will offend no one except people in the future who value clarity. So uh, that is, you know, I mean, there's lots of people who have those kinds of topics, you know, talk about race in America, sometimes talk about class or anything in England. Um, in Canada, it can be religion, although in the in America, it can be religion as well. Uh, in France, it's any social limits whatsoever. Uh, in uh, Germany, it's any not social limits <laughs> whatsoever. In Greece, it's financial mathematics and uh, uh, um, numeric literacy. Uh, that is the big problem. Uh, but anyway, I could go on and on with these cliches. But um, it is, uh, th- there is this censorship in, in the everyday that people are constantly sending out these radar pings. Can I talk about this? Can I talk about this? And most people have just given up and they just retreat to the safety of the most banal Hallmark card sentiments that you could possibly think of. Like <laughs> I got my teeth cleaned last week and the um, uh, got into a very engaged conversation with the dental hygienist about uh, ISIS and the Middle East. Uh, she knows uh, what I do and she's like, well, what do you think? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> we got very, uh, very animated and very, it was a great conversation. And uh, it's, um, you know, but there's so much fear. Yeah, I've actually ex- experienced that ostracism recently, that exact thing where I, I told somebody about kind of, I started explaining anarchism to them and basically the next week they kind of said oh i don't really think we're the same sort of person so you know i'm I'm gonna they basically told me to go away <laughs> but in british ways so d- dotted around the subject but <laughs> right, right yeah as soon as i kind of brought up an idea that wasn't oh look at how i mean especially in university look how good the government is giving all this free money for us so that we can go study and become clever people and help and they help the poor. As soon as I said, Man, well, do they? Like, I, I, I try not to be, even be that forceful with it. Because that's, that's the other thing I find. A lot of people, when you do bring up these deep topics, either they run away, like you said, or out of the same fear, they attack, you know, the fight or flight kind of mechanism. So rather than fleeing, some people actually go in fight mode. And then that's even worse in a way, especially for me, because then I'm like, oh, I'm in a battle now which is what my parents would kind of do when I brought up conversations over the dinner table. Like it would often be, you need to stop talking now, basically. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so I think that there's a depth anxiety that is experienced as internalized social anxiety by people who are interested in talking about something other than time-wasting trivia. And, uh, yeah, that is a very, um, that is a very tough thing. You know, uh, if you can talk about deep things, the world fundamentally changes. You know, I was, I was just thinking about it. Like we, we passed 100, 100 million downloads a while back. I don't know what we're at now. No, I'm not trying to provoke you. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've already thought about so, that. I think that so don't fuck up, Toby. <laughs> yeah. just, uh, oh, God, more people. Better think so carefully people. about everything you say. It's recorded forever. But... <laughs> But that's enough to move the needle of culture a little bit. 
that is enough to move the needle of culture just a tiny bit. And fundamentally, you know, this is the, the thing that people don't get about this show. I have no, I don't really care whether people agree with me or not. I don't. I don't care whether people agree with me. I do care that they think about these issues. Have I got them all right? Good God, no. <laughs> of course not, right? But uh, apparently, because you know, somebody emailed me, I keep talking about, you know, mammals that give birth to, there is some mammal somewhere, some kind of platypus that gives birth to eggs. So <laughs> I'm not even right about mammals. But it doesn't matter what you think. It matters how you think, and it matters what you think about. And I think that this show, which I think is pretty unique, that this conversation has moved, obviously a tiny bit, but it's moved the needle of cultural and social discourse just a tiny bit. And that is a challenge whenever anything foundational changes in the language that is the physics we called culture. It is disorienting and alarming to people, which is why everyone avoids it so much. I mean, the power structures in the world are entirely built on language. And uh, if, if language begins to be examined more deeply, the power that language is designed to conceal becomes visible. The force that language is designed to conceal becomes visible and people get uncomfortable. <laughs> so if you are somebody who's interested in conversations of depth and import, then there will be, uh, it will cause a lot of people a lot of anxiety in, in the world around you. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I this show definitely has moved. I can see that. It, I mean, it's changed how I think completely. I, I used to have, I most of my conversations with my friends were just what we called banter, but it's just insulting each other. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a terrible, terrible British uh, trait. Yeah, this constant tear down, which is of course exactly what you'd expect from a culture that still has its roots in serfdom. But anyway, <laughs> exactly. And then this show just kind of because hearing like how you speak is just so different to what I was doing. I was like, what? It's a, like it's almost different language. <laughs> and it, um, the problem is, is that kind of made it obvious when other people were doing it as well. So rather than it kind of it shifted rather than the anxiety coming from kind of fearing the win lose. It also became a bit of one. Well, now I'm learning this new language and I'm sort of trying to forget the old one, but everyone speaks the old language. And right. So that it kind of distant it. I mean, it helped me personally, but it also isolated me even further in a way. Yeah, a friend of mine uh, sent me a um, cartoon, one of these kind of chilling existential cartoons. And it was, I can't remember the title, it was something like The Mind of an Ang Anxious Person or something like that. And it was, um, it showed the person playing video games. Right. And you're playing while you're I playing video play. games. Have you seen it? No, I just, I play a lot of video games. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I mean, that also helps with social anxiety because the the, the, the choices are all... <laughs> one, two, or three, or you shoot people. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. But I have to work. No awkward pauses in the game. Just hit the escape key. But, um, yeah, so it said, your brain, while you're playing video games, you're fine. Your brain, while you're watching TV, you're fine. Your brain, while you're on Facebook, you're fine. Your brain, at three o'clock in the morning, you're dying. Yeah. 
And I think that um, so much of what we call social interaction seems to me to be a distraction from dying. And then death comes along and all the words you could have said. You know, everyone says, oh, you'd be sure to tell the people you love them that you love them. I think that's great advice. It's called being honest. I think that's wonderful. Nobody ever says, be sure to tell the people you hate that you hate them. <laughs> because don't be honest that way. But tell the people right. you love that you love them. I think that's good advice. Why not? Sure. That's, that's valid. That's right. But nobody ever says um, on their deathbed, people regret having had so few meaningful conversations. You don't hear a lot of that stuff. Or tell the people what you think of God, what you think of law, what you think of reality, what you think of virtue. Nobody ever says that. It's all like, I love you, <laughs> which yeah. is fine, but it's not deep in particular. It's a nice sentiment to hear, and I'm not saying love is unimportant, blah, blah, blah. But it's not, you know, the question is, if if you're not talking about anything else, if you're not talking about anything deep or meaningful, or you don't admire the person's moral courage or whatever, then what do you even mean to say? I love you. You're not talked about anything deep. It's kind of putting the cart before the horse. Anyway, I have deep conversations and then the love will, the expressions of love will, anyway. Right, yeah. Um, Let's get to the ladies for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the interesting bit. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know if it's just lack of experience in this area or if it's something more deeper from parents or something, but it I use the word impossible because that's how it feels. Say it, say I, I'm talking, I've managed to actually start a conversation with um, a girl that I've, I find attractive, um, which is for me quite a big step anyway. And we're just talking about, you know, some small talk, maybe a bit of deeper things as well. Not too deep because <laughs> England. Um, and what I really want to do is just say, I, I, like a small compliment, even something as simple as just, you know, oh, you look, you look very nice, or um, or just something, or, or I want to ask her to meet again, so like for coffee or, you know, a, a date situation basically, and the yeah. words just won't come out of my mouth. Right. Like I, I physically can't say it. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. I, it, 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 yeah. I don't. It's not that I feel nervous in that situation. Um, it's just the words I want to say I can't, and and the words that will do is what I just end up saying, which tends to kind of kill the conversation because it's not very genuine. What's the words will do? Um, no, uh, uh, that's uh, that was badly phrased. The words, just the, the standard kind of small talk words, will come out instead just to keep the conversation. Oh yeah, going. like uh, I I caught my bus on time this morning, which is good because it was raining and yeah yeah right exactly. right okay yeah. well okay are you white yes okay see toby this is what you don't understand because i'm sure nobody's ever told this to you you are a white male so you are incredibly privileged you have patriarchal power oh yes yeah, yeah. coming out the little vagina at the end of your penis and i just think it's important for you to remember that just kidding <laughs> <laughs> any help any at all but it's just kind of funny because you know i mean people always There's tell us about you know, white patriarchal power and it's like so, i'm sorry 
and I'm just saying there's four feminist societies in my university. So. Yeah. So what you don't understand is you can actually order the elements to command you using your penis. Yeah. You know, you can point exactly. your penis at rose bushes and make them cough up coconuts. I mean, people, you have this astounding penis power. Uh, it is a rocket sled of near infinite cosmological possibilities. You can reverse time by castanetting your balls together like those Newton machines. Uh, you can just do the most amazing and astonishing things. You can send your penis out to pick up a lager for yourself and, and bring it back with a packet of chips. Crisps. Sorry, crisps. So you can do all of these wonderful and amazing things because white penis. And um, so I just, you know, it's important to remember that. Just order people. Because you have patriarchy, right? Yeah, that 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 work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I order you with the scepter of my pale penis to kneel. <laughs> yeah, good luck. So, and, and this again, women. A lot of women, I think they kind of get this, which is why they don't ask men out in general. But it's really terrifying. And and the more you're interested in the woman, the more terrifying it is, right? Yeah. It definitely. Um, I mean, there's kind of a dichot- uh, I, I don't know that's the right word, but uh, yeah, you kind of get the two situations. Either it's a very attractive girl to me, in which case it's terrifying, or it's a not-so-attractive girl, in which case my brain just kind of goes, well, just find someone more attractive. I don't just mean good-looking. I mean, you know, the other traits as well. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah, like somebody you like to talk to. Yeah. And and also, I mean, if if <laughs> and I, I don't want to go on a monologue, cause, but but it's um, if it's if it's more anxiety, because, you know, like, why would you want it? Right. So then if it's yeah. like uh, I could ask you out and then we could have a whole evening of this. Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. That's uh, that's kind of masochistic. Right. If if. If it's that stressful to ask her out, how stressful is it going to be to pick her up and see if she has a good time and maybe even ask her out again or maybe even kiss at the end of the night or whatever, right? Yeah, and the one girlfriend that I have had, it it wasn't anything like that at all. Um, it was basically she just said, do you want to make out? I think were her exact words. <laughs> it was very kind of open and then just things kind of went from there. Um and she, she very much led to the relationship. I, I didn't really have to do anything in that, so I didn't. Um, yeah. So, um, so the, the so you basically you just floating there and somewhere down the lazy river, right? You just like carried on the little canoe boat of vagina. You go down the river and see where it leads, right? Yeah, exactly. And it actually made me a lot more of a passive person than I was. I, 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 I started in that relationship, which lasted quite a long time. Um, it, I kind of became more and more withdrawn just because I could hear with someone like finding, you know, kind of doing it all for me. So I just kind of came to rely on her. Right. Yeah. Well, it is awkward in in some ways when you are interested in a woman because you're basically thinking about screwing. But at the same time, you're pretending to be interested in her birds. (laughs) 
<laughs> or a stamp collection or whatever, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there was an old joke, and I don't even know where it came from, and it's not even funny, but there was an old joke about, you know, like, hey, you want to come up and see my etchings? <laughs> you know, which is basically, you want to come up for a coffee? Would you like to come in for a drink? You know, and it's all like, let's have sex in a place where people find it harder to film us. <laughs> and and that, the, the euphemisms around sexuality, right? Like, would you like to go out for dinner sometime is a euphemism for eggs, <laughs> right? For, <laughs> hey, want to continue the human species in our own grindy, messy way? <laughs> yeah. It is kind of awkward because... It's like it's like going to a car dealership and making small talk and pretending that you're not interested in the cars. <laughs> it's just kind of weird. <laughs> and, and especially in that moment where, you know, because, yeah, date, you know, it could still be, you know, maybe one person doesn't think. But at some point you make that move, right? Yeah. Right? You try to hold her hand or, or you, um, you try to kiss her or something like that, right? That transition has always seemed to me kind of like running up a seesaw until the fulcrum, fulcrum tips. Uh, because at that moment, that's like the do or die. That's the egg, no egg situation, right? Yeah, and it literally and feel like do or not die. So. I'm sorry? It or die, kind of. It does feel like do or die. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And And also, this could be because we're not... Like, for a man to want to sleep with a woman... Throughout a good portion of human history, that meant until she's dead. Wait, that sounds kind of sinister. <laughs> no, but it would be a lifelong commitment, right? Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't usually even get to kiss a girl until you had committed to her, maybe on the cheek or maybe once on the lips, but you wouldn't really be able to even kiss a girl unless you were willing to commit to have and raise and hold and honor and be with her while she dies of tuberculosis at the age of 59 or something. And so the stakes that men of depth feel with regards to asking out women is something I think related to the fact that we kind of get that it's a big deal, right? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, have you ever wanted to ask a girl out and then never call her again? Or like, has that been a big driver for you? Or No, I think I'm looking for... I don't know. It, it, it's hard to know without having tried it really but i don't know but if you haven't tried like if if you haven't sort of looked at a woman with that cold reptilian clinton eye and said how can i get her to absorb my bodily fluids and then escape uh like the wind at dawn and um if that's not been your modus operandi and that certainly wasn't mine yeah i've never really had that it's never been the kind of escape thing yeah you don't yeah, you don't want to use a woman like uh, a flashlight and and toss her aside, right? I mean, you want to get to know her, you want to, you know, have a relationship and and so on. It's not just about, you know, squirt and squat and split, right? Yeah. And yeah. so so that means that you're looking for a relationship, and um, all of that stuff is why it's probably higher stakes for you than it is for a lot of other people. Right. Because they're not looking for a relationship. They're just looking for a fling. You can't be looking for a relationship if all you have to offer is small talk. I mean, that's like going into a car dealership with spare change in your pocket expecting to walk out with a car. I mean, I'm not saying people like that don't have relationships. I mean, they do. They just 
I don't know what they call it, but yeah, you know, they, they are in the same room making yeah. making mouth noises at each other. And <laughs> I don't know, eventually they get bored and divorced uh, or frustrated or mortality raises its ugly head and they realize that uh, every time they utter another platitude of emptiness, they are kissing deaths behind <laughs> having him open up. So, yeah, you, you could be just uh, really interested in some depth. You also have, of course... Um, concerns i would assume because your parents had a relationship had a kid or more than one and then got divorced right yeah i was just thinking that that maybe that, that, i mean I, I when i was in a relationship as well i had those fears constantly like am i just going to relive my past right and it's definitely because they, my mum and dad were in a 26 year mar marriage and then just for i mean for, according to them it gradually fell apart but for me my experience of it was one day we would sat in the living room and then they told me that they were separating and it just came out of nowhere. <laughs> and I, I still... Wait, so you, did they have a, what you would call a good relationship when you were younger? Um, it was f functional, <laughs> so I wouldn't say good. There were, there were, I mean, this is where... Functional. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> oh, it, God. It, it, I have it, yet to see a... I've yet to see a wedding anniversary card with the word functional. <laughs> exactly. It was Honey, I really appreciate your functionality and your massive non farting in bed. I mean that's uh that's that's a pretty dry way to describe Yeah, and I think it's the apt term, which is the the sad thing. It dry dry functional it was very the intimacy was really not common at all. Especially in front of the children, it was. I mean, if there was kind of more intimate things, it, I didn't see them. Like, well, and did your parents take delight in each other's company? Um, I mean, not anymore, of course. Um, it, it's so. It's. I'm just trying to distinguish more recent memories of them from older memories of them, but. They, I think they once did. I think they they once. I mean, they they met each other in music um, college, and that kind of shared passion is. I think they definitely delighted in each other when it when in that area. Um, but when it came to raising children, and doing the boring stuff of life, <laughs> like bills and all that, and them i mean they had very different strategies to cope with it and those strategies were kind of opposites in a way my dad would avoid procrastinate and my mum would tackle heads tackle head on and um never stop <laughs> like i mean t to this day she just she's constantly working um yeah. on i i would even describe how she looked after us kind of as working in a way it was a list of things that needed to be done that then got ticked off that day right right yeah a lot of people divorces in the boomer generation are way up i can't remember the number but they've increased by something like 50 percent over the past um 15 years or so yeah um, and uh it's brutal i mean god i can't imagine <laughs> now that i'm old <laughs> Now that my looks are gone, I'm going to get back out there. <laughs> well, 
don't know. I think that... Um, and this fallout of love, slowly things drifted apart. That's pretty terrifying, right? Yeah, it's it just the idea of it. I don't... <laughs> it's like it's like waking up every morning and your arm is one millimeter further just detached from your body. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> my arm and I, we just... We just drifted apart, he said, with a disarming smile. And and it, it, what does that mean? I mean, the moment that your arm is a millimeter away from your body, don't you want to go get it reattached? I mean, you notice that? Yeah. We just drifted apart. Then my arm went off and hitchhiked its way to Pasadena, where it became a rodeo clown. <laughs> it's especially prominent for me because um, I'm atheist now, but I was raised a Christian and I was a chorister. And I would sing at lots of weddings. Um, and... I mean, I would hear the vows over and over again till death do us part. And then there's all these people breaking their vows. And, <laughs> and if you don't know why, then the fear of repeating history when you don't know why is completely terrifying. Because then it's like, you want to step in the boxing ring with someone who's really good? I'm going to blindfold you first. It's like, no, I don't think I do. In fact, if I can't see, I don't want to play. <laughs> And um, it is brutal, of course, uh, if you, even if you date the wrong girl, if you get married to the wrong girl, it can be a complete disaster for your life. Yeah, when my first girlfriend asked me out, um, in the way that I said, do, do you want to make out? I, um, it wasn't actually in person, it was over Facebook, I think, <laughs> um, as it is kind of nowadays. Um, and it literally took me half an hour to kind of get the courage just say yes even though this was just a quite attractive girl asking me to make out with her she wanted she asked you to suck face on facebook <laughs> yeah <Got it. laughs> i hope it was a yeah. private yeah, message anyway. one in two oh, sexually yeah, yeah, yeah. active young people <laughs> yeah, yeah one in one in two sexually active young people will get an std by the age of 25 uh less than half of adults 18 to 44 have ever been tested for an STD other than HIV or AIDS. Uh, now, and this is American. I don't know the degree to which it fits in England. It's probably not wildly disparate. 16% of Americans between the ages of 14 and 49 are infected with genital herpes. Um, 48%, uh, well, it doesn't matter. 19 million new herpes infections every year. There's no cure for herpes. Women in, tw in 2012, women 15 to 19 years had the second highest rate of gonorrhea compared to any other age or sex group. Um, women 15 to 19 have over twice the rate for gonorrhea and over four times the rate of chlamydia compared to men in the same age group. And uh, it is a, um, it's a, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a problem. It's something to be alert to and aware of. So knowing a woman's, um, family history, knowing a little bit about her romantic history, you're sleeping with every one that woman has ever slept with, biologically speaking. And uh, it is a, um, it is a big, it is a big challenge uh, to, to figure out how to safely and reliably find someone to love whose, uh, whose affections aren't going to seriously decrease your quality or quantity of lifespan. Yeah. And that's just talking about kind of the physical things like STDs and, and unwanted pregnancies and things. There's also the the emotional repercussions of a failed relationship that oh, I yeah. wasn't prepared for. 
<laughs> which I've had to deal with over the last five months, which I'm, I mean, it still kind of haunts me. <laughs> it's, it, it, it just the constant. Now that's the, that's the British habit, right? Where every time you talk about something that's painful, you've got to give me a cover laugh, right? I'm not trying to make you anxious. I'm just oh, yeah. pointing it out that I'm noticing it. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard you point it out on the show before and I, I didn't even realize I was doing it. You said, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> exactly. No, yeah. yeah, I just realized I'm, yeah, I am laughing quite a lot. That's, well, yeah, I mean, and I, some of it, of course, is perfectly fine. And, yeah, yeah. and it's not bad or wrong. It's just that it's, it's a rush to say, this is important to me. I'm going to give you counter signals to find out if you're going to notice and if you're interested. And I am. So what happened five months ago? Did she dump you? Did you dump her? Um, I dumped her, but slightly complicated situation. Um, I'll, I'll just explain it as quickly as I can. She found she she's a year under me. Um, she and she found out that she was going to be in. A, uh, she failed to get into the university that I'm into, so she'd have to go to one that was further away. Um, because it it had already been long distance for the my first year at university. Um, so this was going to be another year of long distance. So that evening, she kind of phoned me up and said, "I don't know if this will work." But we talked it through, and um, and it felt more secure after that. And then we spent kind of the weekend together, and I think this was my fault, but also she could be to blame. We didn't follow it up, like we didn't mention it at all. We just kind of tried to go back to what it was before um, she'd said that. So then I, I kind of felt this increasing isolation from her. Um, so on. So about five days after that, I kind of said, you're not talking to me. You're, you're not answering my texts. You're not answering my calls. Like, <laughs> like I can't. And it, the whole summer had been um, very, she changed a lot um, since the end of school. Um, she became a lot more of a kind of outgoing person than she used to be. And it, it all felt really unfamiliar. And I, I, it's, I didn't like it. So I kind of said, yeah, let's end it here, which at first felt kind of relieving. And then, and then I suddenly realized, oh, wait, why, why did I do that? Um, and then I tried to get back in touch with her and she's just like not having any of it. Um, wouldn't even meet up with me. Um, right. But I mean, there is, I mean, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about all of that, but I mean, it's an obvious lesson that you don't need underscored from me, but avoidance brings avoidance right yeah yeah i see that now and the avoidance of rejection will often bring the reality of rejection right yeah that's a very um concise way of saying what i was what i think what i think about it i mean i thought a lot about that relationship it's it's been very hard to kind of work out whether i was the bad guy or she was the bad guy or but it doesn't sound like either on if you was the bad guy. There were just some bad habits that coincided, yeah. right? I was just I'm still still struck by the fact that you said she became more outgoing after she asked you to have make out on Facebook. Kind of <laughs> well, outgoing to me, but you know, what do I know, right? So yeah, so as far as as far as dating goes, you know, my goal has always been to try to give people in this realm, to give people the tools that I think are important in trying to find a quality mate, in trying to find someone who 
you look, you don't want to sleep around. You don't want to go through this dating and breaking up thing. I mean, you want to find if ideally, I mean, isn't this true for anybody who wants a stable and long term relationship? You want to find the woman of your dreams and you want to stay with her. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to get all kinds of Victorian. I've had the experience of both and the woman of your dreams who you stay with infinitely better, infinitely better. And that's what you want. And that you have not been taught, right? Yeah, exactly. Just as I wasn't taught. I mean, the media doesn't tell you any of that. And media says, be pretty, have sex. Hey, it's consequence free. <laughs> no STDs, no heartbreak, no babies. Have fun, right? Um, sex, sex is a toy given to us by nature for no reason whatsoever other than for our own personal amusement and the spread of various bacteria around the world. <laughs> and that, what you've been taught from culture and from art is sort of the opposite of what sex and romance is for. Sex and romance is to create a pair bond so that you can raise children in the best possible environment. Right? I mean, that's that's what your penis gets hard for. Right? That's what you... That's why you stammer. That's why we get sweaty palmed and our IQ goes down by approximately 12 million points when we're attracted to sometimes even just talking to a woman. And if you can find the woman of your dreams, then that is about as good as it's going to get. You, you, re, you cannot ask for more than someone you're just overjoyed to wake up with and go to bed with every day, right? Yeah. And because I won't, it's that that's what makes it so scary though because when i initially did date my first girlfriend because i wanted that so badly i kind of pretended that i had that and you wanted that um i, I wanted that forever yeah that, i wanted that experience of you know enjoying every moment with her and finding it you know just wonderful and it w really wasn't that and i didn't enjoy every moment with her and it <laughs> Wasn't that wonderful? Oh, no, I'm <laughs> but, she invited you to suck face on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. She wasn't talking to your brain there, my friend. <laughs> no, and it wasn't. No, no, she wasn't. <laughs> Want penis with heartbeat? Please bring both. <laughs> penis first, right? Yeah, which is why it's surprising it did last quite a while. So. Not unless you're needy, <laughs> but <laughs> oh, oh, well, yeah, again. or she is, right? Because, oh, I mean, it didn't start off with the highest standards. But look, yeah. the, I get the fear. I, I do. And this is why I tell people, you go to therapy, learn about your family history, talk to your parents, ask them about their childhoods, Dr grill your parents about what went wrong with their marriage. Right? They owe you that. You know? I mean, they owe you that. Yeah. Because their marriage is the template for your marriage, and you don't want a marriage that ends up like their marriage. So ask them, and if they say, well, I'm not comfortable, it's like, hey, you gave me this template for 20, what was it, 26 years? You gave me this template for 26 years. You've got to tell me how it went wrong. Because if I don't know, most likely I'm just going to reproduce it, right? Yeah. So I, find I, these things out. I have, used Sorry, that, I have used that argument with them. And um, after they, I mean, my, my dad's always open to help, but my mum does want to avoid these topics a lot of the time. But the problem is I then kind of get, with my mum, I get a fog, and the fog can either come in something that's just blatantly wrong, like, oh, your father never did anything for me, 
Um, or well, that is very vague. Exactly. Yeah. Sexually, romantically, oh, she, she would just the say house. nothing. Yeah, she would just say she did, he did nothing, which is weird because, like, he you're there. Yeah, exactly. I'm there. He 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 I was. I mean, unless it was like a lot of wine and a turkey baster. I mean, that's <laughs> something. Yeah, and uh, he was the primary breadwinner. So it, it, it's such a weird thing to say. Oh, uh, so she lies. Yeah. He never did anything, even though he paid the bills, right? Or he made the money that paid the bills. Yeah, but it's not a lie in her head, which is why it's so hard to talk to her. It's not a lie in her head. I think that may be an excess of empathy there, my friend. <laughs> Perhaps. I mean, talk about an unverifiable hypothesis, right? Yeah, true, actually. I'm going to lift the maternal lid and look deep into the rainbow fog of and, and determine the hermana hermana, right? Yeah, I, right. I mean, I was going to say, or it, it seems like that because um, because she would always get defensive if I challenged it, but that doesn't mean it's, she doesn't know it's not <laughs> lies. She, she would do that either way. So. No, listen, uh, if I say two and two make four, my daughter challenges that, I don't get defensive. Yeah. Because <laughs> it just is, right? <laughs> I mean, I can show you. Give me four coconuts and off we go, right? Right. So, yeah, I, um, I'm i going to just give you, i got to move on. But let me just, yeah. I'm so sorry. I mean, you're a great guy to chat with. And I, I hope that you um, understand that you're a very, very engaging and enjoyable person to have a conversation with. Um, that's important for you to know if you've got social anxiety. But, very important. Yeah, thanks. Right? Um, but here, here's some tips. Here's some tips. <laughs> Look at the stuff she's into. You know, if, uh, you know, if she reads exclusively, uh, you know, twisted BDSM erotica, eh, could be a warning flag. If she's had lots of relationships beforehand, real warning flag. I mean, the numbers are, you know, 80% chance, 80, 80 to 85%, if I remember rightly, chance of marriage succeeding for the whole rest of your life if you marry a virgin. And that yeah, goes down. The child. Yeah, it goes down a couple of percentage points. For every additional partner, and once you're starting to talk like 10, 12, 15, 16, 20 partners, um, your chance of success, I mean, you might as well just have piranha lawyers eat your balls off before you can walk down the aisle. So there are particular tips and tricks. Uh, you know, does she have self-knowledge when she talks about her childhood? Does she giggle about catastrophes? Um, does she have a consistent and comprehensive narrative about her childhood? Uh, does she, I dare say it, uh, giggle when talking about really ugly or difficult things? Um, is she able in a conversation to be with you? In other words, she can, she can talk about herself without you feeling like you're Sandra Bullock style tumbling in the deep space of her fundamental blindness to other people. And these are all things. How do you feel when you're in the presence of the person? Do you feel richer, deeper, connected, more powerful? Do you feel more um, who you are? Does she have curiosity and empathy? Does she have insights about who you are that are encouraging and not shaming? You know, um, you said that your mother avoids topics. And that, of course, is exactly what happened with your last girlfriend, that you had a crossroads in the relationship that you both avoided and let inertia drift you apart, right? Yeah. And exactly. yeah, these are all, and, and you have to know where your template is, right? This is where the self-knowledge part is so important. What, what was femininity to me when I was growing up? Is that all women or is that my mother? Is that the result of female nature or is that a result of my mother's choices? And 
if we have issues with our mother, everybody does, right? I mean, my daughter's going to have issues with me too. But um, if we have issues with our mother, do we whitewash those issues by either blaming someone else or by universalizing her flaws as some sort of foundational essence of human frailty or female frailty or whatever? These are very, very important issues. Um, if, If there are things about your mother that you don't like, are you aware that you don't like them? And are you aware of how they show up and how they manifest in other people's personalities and other women, how they come across? Uh, that's also very important. Um, you know, th- th- there are specific things. I'll probably do a whole show on this another time. There are very specific things or weaknesses that Western men and Western women have as a whole. Um, and um, I think Western men at the moment have a tendency to be too needy and to want to buy affection. Um, either with money or with status. And I think that Western women have a bit of a tendency to uh, avoid responsibility and be overtly sexual rather than soulfully excellent. And um, so there are things that you look in the degree to which culture has programmed your expectations and your preferences around uh, women. Um, what do you think about the relationship between your sexuality and the future? And um, your sexuality should not be hijacked and turned into your own personal plaything. Uh, You should recognize that sexuality is there to provide foundational uh, monogamy-based pair bonding for child raising. And doesn't mean you can't have, I'm not Catholic, (laughs) fun non-procreational sex, but still what it's for, right? And that's fine. It doesn't, you know, I mean, recognizing that your tongue likes sugar because it was very rare throughout history to be able to find it. So you had to have a strong incentive to go and pursue that concentrated form of energy that could be the difference between life and death or catching the deer or not catching the deer. We we understand that. It doesn't mean that once you know that you can't ever have a candy bar. It just means that you know that and can organize your life with that knowledge and not just eat sugar all day because it tastes good. So I think, you know, that's why I say, you know, therapy, talking to your family, finding out your history, uh, mapping what you can and can't talk about with those who raised you is really, really important. Um, And I, you know, I certainly, uh, when my daughter asks me, I admit to where I've made mistakes or things that I've done that are wrong, because I don't want her to ever think that you shouldn't admit these things. And also, I don't want her to think that uh, to, to make the mistakes which is much more likely if I refuse to admit them. Does does that help at all? And it's a bit of a scatter shot, but yeah, that brings it to some bells. There's definitely some things that happened there. Like, um, I definitely should have. It should have been a warning sign when my girlfriend got along with my mother perfectly. <laughs> so. Well, the warning sign is asking you to come and make out on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is an explicitly sexual presentation that is consciously or unconsciously entirely designed to bypass your reasoning. That's, yeah, that's tits to lizard brain electricity, right? I mean, you probably <laughs> weren't thinking about the quality of the woman as a whole and whether this is going to be useful or appropriate or positive or negative or whatever. It's just like, whoa, I'm all tingly, <laughs> right? <laughs> Upper brain shutting down, <laughs> Spock dying, Kirk take over <laughs> yeah faces on full insemination captain especially with this idea that's constantly spread that we should try and be uh that romanticism is should be spontaneous and um not you know fought through and 
kind of the idea that Spock would never have a relationship and Kirk would get all the girls. That I, that idea is kind of very common. Um, yeah, and William Shatner has yeah. been married what five or six times, <laughs> something like that. So, listen, I'm so sorry. Please call in if uh, again. I would absolutely be thrilled to chat with you again. Yeah, um, uh, but uh, you, take some of the stuff under advisement. I'd say, you know, I mean, if you can get get your hands on some therapy, I think that'd be great. Uh, not because there's anything you know fundamentally broken. This is what again, if we make this pitch for therapy, therapy is like coaching, right? You you, you don't say, well, I need a a coach for ice skating because my legs are broken. No, you need a coach because you're a damn good ice skater and you need to get better. It's because of your potentiality that you go for therapy, not because you're broken and need to be fixed. But um, so give that a shot. And uh, if, if, you know, you're still having all these challenges, which I can fully understand, it's a long thing to turn around, uh, you know, give us, a, give us a call back and we'll, we'll go through some more. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks, Toby. Really appreciate the call. Bye. Thanks, Toby. All right. Up next is Jillian. Jillian wrote in and said, do you believe there could be negative consequences of children being financially dependent on their parents well into adulthood? Uh, <laughs> you think? What do you think? Yeah, it sounds like a pretty obvious answer. Um, um, and I've been listening to your show now for a couple of years, and I've, you know, obviously realized that it is a problem, and I'm trying to sort of... Uh, is it your problem? It, it, it is. It is my problem. Yeah. Wait, as as the giver or the receiver? No, as the receiver. Oh, well... I, d- I didn't... Look, you don't sound old enough to be the giver. I just always want to make sure. I don't yes. know. Maybe you were grandmother at 30. I don't know, but... Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I'm 32. Um, can I maybe give you a little bit of background? I have something written down just to kind of give you an o- overview. Um, oh, I'd be thrilled. Please okay. Um, so in my adult life, I've been through a lot of transitions, um, moving from place to place. Uh, so for example, since 2008, I've lived in four different cities and at seven different addresses. And I know that my parents are always going to be there, uh, to bail me out financially. And that's because they always have. And I Mm. think that, uh, this is really holding me back from achieving my goals in life and specifically career goals. And I think that it's had a huge impact on my relationship with my parents because they have a tendency to be controlling. And, uh, I'm worried that like I still rely on external validation from them and like there's a need to justify my decisions because of their past financial support. So I think that uh, I lack self-belief and confidence as a result of their control. And uh, I think there's a lot of feelings of guilt still there, which makes sense. And and uh, I, Guilt I, on their part? Like I feel guilty. Like I feel like I... You owe, feel guilty for taking the support? Yeah, like as if I owe them okay. something for their financial support over the years. If that makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to like. So I, is that the end of what you read? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Now, have they been? And you don't have to give me any numbers, of course, right? And and you can tell me to get lost any time <laughs> I step over line. But has it been like a, a little bit of support, or have you been like uh, you know five bags with chihuahuas in them? I mean, what are we talking? About? <laughs> um, I would say like there's been a lot of in-between job support. So I've had quite a few number of jobs over the years. Um, So like, let's say from 2007 to 2008, I lived overseas for about a year and a half. And I had a full-time job for maybe half the time I was there. 
And the other half the time that I was there, I was kind of, you know, doing some temporary work and in between jobs. So my dad would be sending me money for rent and to pay some of my bills. And so we're talking like, and I was in my mid to late twenties then. So over the years, not including the- No, don't, 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 thousands, not millions, right? Yeah, thousands. Okay. 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 And, um- uh, what do you? Th- uh, nah, that's that's too leading a question. <laughs> you you go on, and I'll, uh, I'll 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 try and add something when I think I can of value. But but go ahead. So I've obviously realized that this is a problem because, um, well, that's one of the reasons why I'm calling you. So I have, you know, kind of taken a step back, and I haven't asked them for money lately. Um, uh, and I have been in sort of a financial need because I am in between jobs again, <laughs> um, which is another pattern that I should probably address with you. But uh, I feel like when I have distance from them and when they're not giving me any money or su- like specifically financial support for for what I need um, on a day-to-day basis, I don't feel this need to explain myself in terms of what I'm doing and what my career aspirations are or what I've accomplished, or there's like this sense of freedom and it's like a really good feeling. And I just want to be able to kind of detach myself from, from my parents and, and not feel that kind of control that is still impacting. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. I'm trying, I'm trying to follow this. Um, I, I caught most of that. <laughs> I just missed a little at the end. I, I always try and really make sure I understand what I'm saying. Okay. So you're saying there's a sense of freedom that comes from having the safety net of your parents. Is that right? No, the freedom of not having it. Free, okay, I'm so sorry because I'm. I, I, that's why I want to make sure. Because then, when you went to the control thing, I'm like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> okay. So, not having the safety net gives you a, a sense of freedom. But how does the control manifest itself from your parents uh, now? Um, for example, uh, my parents were like, "Have you gone to the dentist lately? Maybe we should give you some money for the dentist." Or have you done this? Or have you done that? Or like, it's, like, it's this fear. Like they're they're living in this state of fear, and they're worried that I can't take care of myself because I've been back in this cycle so many times, and they've bailed me out. So I think that they're worried that yeah, I'm incapable of taking care of myself. So that's where the control comes in. All right, in, all right. If that makes sense. Okay, so uh, I, let me. I, I think. I, ah, look, Jillian, I might have something. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> when when you were a kid. When you were a kid, uh, how did this manifest itself? Like, let's say that you didn't study for a test or you didn't prepare something for school or I don't know, whatever it was was going to be. Uh, what happened? Probably wouldn't have happened um, because... What wouldn't have happened? Uh, like, I mean, I wouldn't have not prepared for a test or not been prepared for school. I was like really, you know, type A that way. I always had my homework done in advance. I always did well in school. Um so it was like this, yeah, my parents were always placed a huge emphasis on, you know, getting a good education and going to university and, you know, being successful. And so. So as a, as a kid, they didn't bail you out? No, I wouldn't like in terms of helping me with school and that kind of thing. That, is that what you mean? Yeah. No, I wouldn't say so. Okay. Uh, if you were late somewhere, they wouldn't say, well, we'll drive you or whatever, right? Mm. Yeah, they would. Yeah. Yeah, they would. And look, and I'm not trying to say parents shouldn't do that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just, what I'm trying to figure out, because you made a statement, which was, they're concerned I can't take care of myself 
And that was as an adult. And my question was, which I think you're answering, is that they didn't seem to think you couldn't take care of yourself when you were a kid, but that changed somewhere between 18 and 32, right? No, you're right, actually, because they, when I was a kid, my mom literally did everything for me. Like she was a stay-at-home mom. She cooked my meals. She made my lunches. She drove me to school. She drove me to all my sporting events. She, she did my laundry. You know, she did everything for me and she didn't let me do it. Like, you know, I wasn't even allowed in the kitchen when she was cooking dinner to help because she, it was, it was in her control and she was going to make dinner for everyone. You weren't. What did she have? Like fences, little electric <laughs> fences or something? I mean, what is that? Trap doors, spike traps, Bengal tiger traps. Uh, I mean, giant rolling Indiana Jones stone balls. I mean, how did you, don't come in. <laughs> Guard dogs around the kitchen. <laughs> Pretty much, there was no interfering. There was no help. Like when help was offered, it was never allowed, and and so it was her domain. And and you know, I think it was sort of a. It, it contributed to a sense of her, her self-worth. Like it was who she was. She was like this power mom who took care of us and did everything for us, which obviously led to problems later because when I moved out, I didn't have a clue what to do. <laughs> um, but I think, um, what, sorry, did you, you moved out to go to university? Is that right? Um, no, I actually stayed at home, uh, for university. And then in my last year of, why not? <laughs> I mean, it's five star baby. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then in my um in my fourth year I moved out and um I actually lived with the guy I was seeing at the time and another roommate. It was closer to the university that I was attending. Um and yeah, so I lived I lived abroad. Are you but, with the guy and a roommate? Yeah. Yeah. It was I think it was to save save rent for when I was in university and and my parents were still like pretty much like supporting me at that point. Like I had a job when I was in university, but they were still, my dad was helping me with rent and, you know, there was always that. So why did you need your dad and a roommate to help you with rent if you had a job? I know. I don't know. I don't know. Extra spending money. I I, I can't tell you. Okay. <laughs> okay. How, how did that relationship go? Um, I think it lasted for about three years. Oh. Yeah. And then, um, it was from, yeah, maybe 2003 to 2000, or maybe, yeah, 2003 to 2005 or six. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. And do you want to become a mom? I do. Yeah, I definitely do. <clears throat> I'm currently I'm in sticking I, away. I'm <laughs> currently in a relationship. I didn't mention that. Sorry. Yes. I actually live with my partner now across the country from my parents. So I don't live near them anymore. I haven't lived. Right. But um, I'm in like a two and a half year relationship. Oh, good. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're going to get married? Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to attack you. Nope. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you ask you insulting? <laughs> no, I mean, I just, um, I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. I'm just nope. genuinely curious. Yeah, we do have plans to get married. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and things are going really well. He's the one that actually introduced me to your show a couple of years ago. So we, oh, cool. Mm -hmm, we listened to a lot of, what did you, what did you think of it first? I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm trying to remember what the hell I was talking about a couple of years ago. Um, I was very interested in what you were talking about. I think that maybe with some of the stuff you were saying initially, I was a bit defensive. Um, <laughs> excellent. excellent. <laughs> That's the plan. <laughs> 
No, because then the defensive people run off because they're never going to be philosophers anyway. So yeah, but you stayed. So good. My parents are super religious and um, controlling, and you know, so like a lot of this stuff, you've actually helped me resolve a lot of problems with my parents thus so far. Um, In particular, my relationship with my mom because we had a the way that we communicated uh, over just over a year ago actually was literally like yelling back and forth until I set some boundaries about a year ago and we didn't speak for about a month and a half and now our relationship has changed quite significantly so thank you for that <laughs> for the better yes you. yes good good i'm glad to hear that yes i'm glad to hear that well good for you and good for her please please pass on my congratulations for <laughs> um adapting to i'm sure some rational preferences on your part so good good to know so now i'm just kind of I guess what I'm wondering is how, I mean, I know that the financial support is, is not helping me. I mean, in terms of being able to stick to something career-wide, it's kind of like, I always have this safety net. So I know that like, I can just keep on, like, there's nothing sort of, there's nothing, there's always something to fall back on. Like, I know that there's something to fall back on. Yeah, no, I get it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not taking the right risks and I'm not really putting myself out there the way that I should um, because of that, I think. All right. Uh, Does the boyfriend do that now too? Does he do what? Um, Bail you out, pay the bills when you don't have an income, that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just trying to get a map. No, he doesn't. No, not so far. He hasn't, no. And when do you want to become a mom? We've talked about it before and uh, probably in the next couple of years, like considering I'm 32 now and um, we've been together. Probably should be in the next yeah. <laughs> in the next year or two, in my humble opinion. Yes, yes. I actually should probably do some more research on that and I trust your opinion. Um, but we- no, don't, don't, don't trust me anything medical, but, <laughs> but look up the stats and yeah. talk to a doctor and all that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you don't know, you just, you know, get your FSH levels checked. You don't know, mm-hmm. you don't know, you don't know what's going on there, but, uh, sooner is better than later. All other things being equal. And, and the reason I'm asking that is because I'm insufferably intrusive. No, <laughs> well, yes, but also, uh, just because, I mean, if, if you're looking at becoming a mom in the next year or two, then, you know let me find the career I can really stick with may not be job one, right? Right. Well, I'm, I'm a yoga instructor, so there is a lot of flexibility in terms of being able to, to do it, part, <laughs> to be able to do it. I'm oh, sorry. I couldn't help myself. Of course, there's a lot of flexibility. You're a yoga instructor. <laughs> um, very polite. Anyway. Love. I appreciate um, it. Very, very generous. Love. <laughs> uh, so obviously there's like, you know, uh, leeway in terms of scheduling and that kind of thing. So I, would like to be able to to have something that's more flexible. Just stop using that word. Uh, where I can be sort of on my own, like entrep- like have something more entrepreneurial. Like right now, or like a year ago, I was teaching. Um, I was living in a different city with my current partner, and I was teaching almost full time. And we moved in October, and I'm just I'm having some trouble finding um, regular classes. And um, so yeah, if I you know we've discussed it. And when we do have children, there will absolutely be one of us staying home with, um, with the child, most likely me. Um, 
Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> if you look down, you might notice these little feeding bags <laughs> that, uh, if I remember rightly, have some utility outside of that, but uh, uh, are pretty useful for, uh, you know, babies. <laughs> but you do, you do make a good point. I guess what I think about as well is when my child is older, wanting to still feel, feel fulfilled personally, if that makes sense, like in a career respect, um, outside of, you know, the huge job it is of being a parent. Um, I, I want to still be able to explore that, you know, that sense of personal fulfillment through, through my work. Right. Oh, I, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I mean, ra- raising a couple of great kids. I mean, do you want more fulfillment? Isn't that like asking for icing on your icing? <laughs> right. No, because look, I mean, being, you know, I don't know when, if it depends, you homeschool kids go, I don't know, whatever that's going to be probably too early to talk about that stuff. But you can get really involved in your uh, kids' lives, right? You you can run the kind of household where all the kids want to come over and play. And you can um, get involved in the school. You can get involved uh, in if you're homeschooling. There are lots of things that you can do. It's not like, well, you know, now they're eight. <laughs> you know, I've got nothing but time on my hands. Right. I think that's kind of an illusion. I, I could be wrong. I think, I think that's kind of an illusion. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily assume that that's going to be a big problem. I would say, what what can I say? But I would say that if you throw yourself into parenting, if down the road you find that there's, you know, something that leaves you unfulfilled or you want to do more, then you can certainly start to explore that. But I wouldn't, you know, one of the great things about getting older is trying, and I'm not perfect at it, God knows to say the least, but try not to make problems or anticipate problems that aren't there yet. That's a, that's a very good point. I think that, you know, that's something. That's- what if being a mom is a mom and a community mom, right? Is like the best thing ever. It could be. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. No, I think that idea of like over planning and thinking about the future a lot and like kind of creating problems in my mind is like something that, yeah, I definitely notice myself doing. Oh. <laughs> all people with strong verbal skills have a tendency, well, I shouldn't say, most people with strong verbal skills have a tendency towards worry. Mm-hmm. I think that's fairly well established uh, psychologically. So, okay. you know, don't necessarily blame yourself. I mean, there's nobody who listens to this show who doesn't have strong verbal skills. I mean, they're not looking at it just to watch my <laughs> gums flap. Uh, and so I assume that, you know, we're head of the Wari War tribe. <laughs> that's just the way it goes, right? Uh, okay. That makes sense. So do you... So, so as far as like... You know, if you were 24 and you wanted kids in your 30s, then you'd have like a decade and you'd, you, you'd be better, right? But if you want to have kids sooner rather than later, which certainly would be my strong suggestion for whatever that's worth, mm-hmm. I wouldn't worry so much about a career, job, co- commitment or whatever it is. Um, because, you know, I'm telling you that, you know, especially if your parents are across the, the country, you know, ain't, ain't nobody bailing you out from those 3 a.m. feedings. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're committed, man. I thought I knew something about commitment before I became a parent. I didn't. What the hell did I know? I knew nothing. <laughs> I'm to my forehand. Yeah, yeah. But um, really- no, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you're in and there's like nothing but sometimes it feels like. But go ahead. No, that makes sense. I didn't actually think about it from that angle. I just, I guess, just like this programming of like, 
even though like I've talked about it countless times with my partner, I did believe when I was a kid, like my mom was a stay at home mom. And I was always like, how could she just be a stay at home mom? You know, like, doesn't she want to do more? Like, doesn't she want to have a career? And obviously I understand that like, there's so much value in that now. And that's just like, you know, societal programming and like government schooling and, and that kind of thing. But Oh, no, a little bit of feminism too. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of feminism too, which is you have to, uh, like a career is what is necessary for female fulfillment. Right. For taxation like purposes. Like just a mom. It's like, oh, sorry, I'm only shaping a human brain. <laughs> like Demi Moore with a pottery wheel. I mean, uh, what are you? Oh, you're doing some typing. Oh, did you make a nice report? Oh, look, a memo. <laughs> it's like. I am shaping a human mind. I'm creating thoughts out of nothing. I was trying to explain. I was trying to explain something to my daughter yesterday because I I, I I like to blow her mind, and uh, she enjoys it too. And um, I said, uh, "Okay, uh, uh, puzzle me this, Batman. Puzzle me this. A human being is a great way of turning a pig into a poem." And she was doodling, trying to figure it out, and so on. It's a Kind of a cool thing, right? Yeah, you eat a ham sandwich, uh, you go write a poem. <laughs> and that's kind of cool. So you are creating something that can turn a pig into a poem. It can turn a piece of lettuce into a table. <laughs> well, maybe that's a bit too much energy <laughs> use, I don't know. But, you know, other people, uh, you know, oh, look, I, I mean, build a bridge. That's great, you know, that's very exciting and so on. But... To make a human being and to say, well, you know, but but in order to be really satisfied, <laughs> you have to produce a newsletter. It's like a newsletter. Are you kidding me? It's just undervalued. I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm a parent fetish. Right. So, I mean, I, I just I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, after, let's say that you have two or three kids and you, you know, you, you, you've created uh, these uh, amazing human beings who, who think for themselves, who argue, who debate, who create um, and, and, you know, boy, if I'd only blogged more, you know, I'd be fulfilled. I don't know. I'm just, yeah, saying that, no, it's uh, just, it's very undervalued. It, it made, I, I think that, I think that, uh, the, hmm, I mean, a, a lot of feminism I like, but the feminism that comes out of the lefty communist Marxist stuff, it's just toxic. I'm sorry. It's just, it's, it's like the, um, civil rights that come out of the communist stuff. Uh, you know, pretty toxic. Yeah, I had to. And this idea that, well, all you've done is made and raised a human being. <laughs> but that's vastly inferior to being a waiter. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I don't know. Come on. Like, be serious. And again, if, if people, you know, I'm not saying it's bad if one will go have a job or it's fine. Right. But, you know, I mean, you, you, you may be surprised at how greatly fulfilling it is to to make a human being i mean it's just incredible yeah and i i like had to spend years unlearning all that super leftist marxist marxist stuff because i went to york so I... <laughs> sorry you have to give me trigger warnings woman it's okay <laughs> i graduated well, no, in 06 I mean, the, so i had some time me, but um uh yeah when i went to york it was just starting Mm. Ah, white male, hang your head in shame for colonialism. It's like, hey, man, John Mills. I didn't own me no continents. In fact, people like me generally got killed protecting the people who owned those continents. 
But um, yeah, no, trigger warnings are... <laughs> York! <laughs> York! I apologize to all women! Sorry, that's just... <laughs> you're York. What am I saying? I'm not worthy. <laughs> um, yeah, so th- there is a lot of that stuff. And there is a lot of... Um, you're, you know, you're better than merely making human beings. It's like, isn't that why we worship God? Because he makes people. I mean, but if only God had blogged, if only God, God had written some memos, then we'd really worship him. Because, you know, just making human beings and all the animals. I mean, especially the snakes with the plasticine, that's dead simple. I mean, if, if only God had had, uh, had a career, then we'd be really into worshiping him. But no, I think making life is is pretty cool enough and you know i guess if your kids grow up and you're in your 50s yeah you can do cool stuff then you still got 30 years uh, of more and more probably uh, 40 years i mean there's tons of time there but um mm-hmm. uh what was the other thing i wanted to say oh it was important too we may never know <laughs> I'm you, Julie, we may never ever know um oh yeah 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 okay so <laughs> that's right yes <laughs> Get back to your mutter. <laughs> right. <laughs> what was her motivation for doing everything for you? Because you, you gave a lot of very positive taking care of us and support. Like, what was her motivation? Because that's not good parenting, you know. No, I know it's terrible parenting. I'm not saying she's a bad parent as a whole, but that aspect of doing everything for your kids, not, hey, Elbow aside, kids, I'll finish these letters for you. Look at them. They're perfect. Oh, Why can't she spell? Right? I mean, well, I watched, what was her motivation? Well, I watched a video where, or listened to a video that you talked about this specifically, I think, a couple of years ago. And talking about, like, not giving your children any preferences and, like, them not having any confidence. I mean, I'm, excuse my paraphrasing. But, um, I mean, I think her motivation was... I, I particularly enjoyed the sing song way you did it. <laughs> I didn't even notice anyway, that. I'm sure that's what most people hear too. <laughs> um, I think it was, well, she was really controlling. And I think, like I said before, I think that doing all that stuff was attached to her identity. Like it was who she was. Like, and I think that. Yeah, that's, that's. Which is bad. She did it because it's who she was. That's called a tautology. Why did she do it? Well, it's who she was. Well, if it's who she was, it's not what she did. And if it's what she did, there was a choice involved, which can't mean it's who she was, right? right. Control. So let's try that one again okay, so <laughs> without without the whole mark. Deplatitude thyself, <laughs> young lady. <laughs> okay. So, well, the first thing that comes to mind is the control, like having control over everything that was going on in my life and not letting me make my own choices or do anything for myself. But I'm probably missing something else. That no, that's that's the behavior. What's the motive? So I have to depend on her. That may be a consequence. What's the motive? Oh, don't you like it when I ask these opaque <laughs> questions, for which there's no obvious answer? <laughs> uh, what's the motive? The dependency is the result. Control. Help me out here, Stefan. <laughs> Okay, well, what happens? And look, it's a tough question, so I get it, right? You, when you get it, you'll get a huge giant click in your head, which we'll actually hear all the way over here. But um, <laughs> but there's no reason why you'd get it up front. I just want you to know okay. that. I certainly took forever, right? So the question, when you ask motive, the question is what occurs for your mom if she doesn't do that stuff? If she grits her teeth and says, 
I'm going to turn the laundry over to you. And teach you the laundry, turn it over to you. What happens to your mom emotionally if that is her choice? What feelings arise in her? Incomplete? Or? Not a feeling. A crossword. Most of my crosswords, but not a feeling. Yeah, it's not a feeling. Um, emptiness? Or dissatisfaction? Usually it's more vivid than that. If it's because it's pretty compulsive behavior, right? Yeah. I mean, if she was still doing your laundry when you're like 17, 18, 19. My sister is. It means that if she, if she doesn't do it, there's some emotion that arises in her that is probably kind of unbearable to her to, to, to repetitively do what is obviously not optimum parenting. It means she has to be avoiding some negative emotion in her that's very strong. Anxiety? No, what would be that's not an emotion either. Um, oh no, anxiety. I think uh, fear, anxiety. Fear. My sister's twenty nine years old, and she doesn't live at home anymore. But she goes home on the weekends, and my mom does her laundry. <laughs> right. Okay. So the challenge. Let me let me backfill in, and you. I think you're bang on, right? Which doesn't mean anything other than what I think. It doesn't mean it's true, right? I'm just telling you what I think. But um, while your mother was busy with all of this stuff, she didn't have to interact with you as much, right? Mm-hmm. Would she have to provide value to you? How does she provide value to you if she's not doing your laundry and your cooking and your cleaning and your tidying and your what, 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 right? Mm-hmm. How does she provide value to you if she's not providing services to you? Right. Because it would be... And I think that's why you you said emptiness first, which I think is probably quite true. Yeah, because even when I would try and talk to her about anything, like even when I was uh, visiting last summer and I would try to engage with her and talk about, you know, in the last call you're talking about talking about real things, like having real things that matter and discussions about things that are important. And when I would try and engage with her, she'd be like scrubbing the countertop or like cleaning the microwave, like the outside of the microwave or like she'd be doing something, you know, like she couldn't fully engage with me. Does that make sense? Or even partially, right? Yeah. Because it's distracting trying to have a conversation with someone who's scrubbing all the depth away. It's so distracting. It's frustrating. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, but what if you said, mom, I'm here to talk. I'm here to visit. Stop, stop. She'd, sit down and talk with me. She'd be like, well, I have, she she'd say? be like, oh, I have to get all this done because, you know, I'm going out to do this or, you know. Right. And I'd say, look, all I want is half an hour, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. I, it, like, so let, let's try that. Let's try that. Okay. So you're not scrubbing and I'm you. And I say, mom, it's really distracting. Could you, you put that stuff down for 20 minutes? Let's just chat. No, no, I can't. I have to go pick your sister up and I have a million things to do this afternoon. So I've got to get this done. It's really important to me if you could just give that a rest. I I promise I will do what you're doing when you go to pick up my sister. I will get it done. But I would really like, because I'm trying to chat with you. I find it really distracting. Jillian, you know, we can talk about it later. I don't have time right now. No, no, I'm just telling you that I... I'll do it for you. I'm making the time for you right now. I don't, I don't want you. You know what they say, tomorrow never comes. Later is, you know. She wouldn't want to do it for me. She would say, no, I got to do it. Like she wouldn't, sorry, she wouldn't let me do it for her. Right. 
So then I would say, wait, are you saying that it's physically impossible for you to not do this right now? Right. It's a choice, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to breathe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are subject to gravity. This particular moment of scrubbering is not absolutely necessary, right? In the same way. Right. Now, and so at some point she'd have to say, no, I don't have to do it, but I really want to, right? <laughs> yeah. And and then we'd have to say, okay, well, let's, I'm just curious, right? Because what would happen if you did put that down and come and chat with me for 20 minutes? What, 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 what do you think you'd feel? Mm-hmm. Probably that- and if she pushed back even further, if she pushed back even further, which she probably would, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's some pretty deep self-management going on there. If she pushed back even further, I mean, you can't corner people and you can't rip the things out of their hands. But what you can say is, okay, what time tomorrow? You can do 20 minutes with me now, or I'm going to request an hour tomorrow where you don't do anything other than chat with me. Mm-hmm. Because at some point, she's going to have to admit that she has to have an hour in the day to talk with her daughter. Or if she says, well, I can't possibly do that, it's like, okay, well... Do you think that maybe something in your life is a little out of balance if you can't take some time to chat with your daughter who wants to talk with you? Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to talk to you about something bad or anything, like criticism. It's nothing. It's just I want to be able to chat with you without this, <laughs> you know, this yeah. feverish, uh, you know, scrub all the sins from the world stuff. Mm-hmm. And my dad would do the same thing in like a different way. Like he, if when I was a kid, if I asked him to, you know, help me with my homework or to read over something that. Um, I had done that I wanted him to proofread or something like it would always be like this. <sighs> okay. Yeah. <sighs> like I was always like disrupting whatever he was doing or like inconveniencing him, mm. you know? So obviously there's some resentment build up, built up. Well, I feel, you know, and then, you know, like never, never spending any time with me except for like at family functions when everybody was together or, you know, at our prearranged like family dinners or there was never like, let's go for a walk and like have a coffee or have a chat or there was never of any of that. And that's because my parents are like super, super defensive. And I would always challenge, like even before I sort of discovered the show and sort of learning more about philosophy, I would always challenge their beliefs and, or just challenge them on, their way of life and they just got super defensive and it would always turn into this huge like yeah like argument and I've only recently learned how to talk to them without myself getting upset because I'm a mm. lot more aware because I learned all those behaviors from them and now I don't let it affect me the way that we used to it just used to be back and forth screaming matches and uh then I had a discussion with my mom about a year ago and I said, like, you know, this isn't gonna this isn't gonna be how we communicate anymore. Like I'm setting boundaries because you're you just she screamed she would just scream at me. And and so, you know, and, and I, I'm very sorry. I like I'm I'm so sorry. I mean, I know that this stuff happens a lot in families. But I am very sorry. I'm sorry for both of you. I mean, I'm not trying to portray your mom as she's the primary agent, she's the parent and all that. But I'm, I'm sorry for both of you that it got to the point where screaming felt like the right thing to do. I mean, that is mm-hmm. a lot of missed opportunities for intimacy result in that kind of short circuit. And I'm, I'm just very sorry for all of that. Thank you. 
And I mean, one of the biggest things is honestly watching the show has helped me communicate with them so much better. And, 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 you know, I understand that I've been working on, I've been, I've been doing therapy like on and off since I was really young, like since I was like a teenager, but, um, I've been actively working on, you know, learning about myself and trying to change bad habits and the way I communicate. And they haven't really been working on themselves at all. So I feel like when I'm having a conversation with them now, I, I'm so aware of what's, what's happening that, you know, when it starts to get to a point of like where they're getting heated, I, I just say like, you're getting upset. Like, I don't want to have this conversation anymore. If you're going to raise your voice, you know, or, you know, sometimes it's difficult. It's obviously really challenging, but, um, yeah, it has helped improve, uh, the way that we do communicate now. Yeah, I mean, definitely, if people have those kinds of bad habits, uh, if if you allow them to impact the relationship, it really takes axe blows to the base of the tree. And so I'm very glad, Jillian, that you are able to intercept that behavior on the part of your parents and uh, not have it manifest because it's very damaging, very damaging. You know, families, everybody is so close just from proximity and history and coming out of someone's body i mean it everyone is so close that it's always struck me that that whispers are so loud in the family mind and i think that the the amount of of hysteria and and destructive emotional energy that that some people bring to the family life is so over the top compared to what is necessary You know, like, I mean, you know, the mom's oh, I was yelling at my kids all day. It's like, you're their mom. Yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you need to yell for? I mean, you, you're, you're a god to them. Yeah, it's terrible. And, and I know in my mom's case, it's because she, that's how her mom raised her. And she never looked anywhere outside of that. So she just, everything that she learned was from her, her mother. And then she carried that on with, you know, yelling and screaming and spanking and like everything. It was just, that's just how she managed us when we were kids. And it was like a terrible experience. And I mean, I'm so glad that I've, you know, I'm starting to learn a lot more about this because that's obvious. I mean, watching your peaceful parenting videos and, and podcasts, uh, on related topics, because I mean, the first thing I had to do was to kind of discover my own reactions that I'd learned from them. And then try and figure out what happened to my childhood, you know, with, with that method of parenting, it's not even, I wouldn't know if I classify it as parenting, but. Mm. Do you have many regrets about your twenties or are you relatively okay with them? Mm. (laughs) Probably some regrets. Yeah, definitely some, um, regrets just in terms of, you know, being, um, being financially dependent on my parents, um, which I sort of felt like I was giving them the reins to control a lot of the decisions that I made and was looking for their validation when I made choices instead of being able to make choices independently. So a lot of, you know, influence from them as opposed to making decisions, yeah, independently. And, yeah, like being in relationships and being unhappy. And I think just because I didn't have the self-knowledge, you know, overreacting and fighting with past boyfriends and, 
you know, dating guys that controlled me, for example, because I didn't realize that's what I was seeking. Like, I didn't realize it at the time, but does that answer your question? <laughs> sort of ramble. It does. It does. And, um, what kind of upgrade do you think your children are going to have over your childhood? I want it to be like 500 million percent better than. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Google Play, my daughter's <laughs> favorite number. Uh, just in terms of being able to negotiate things, every you know, obviously, no. I mean, I want to treat my children like like equals. Like, and I never felt like my preferences were considered when I was a kid. So I want to. I'm very aware of that, and just even the way that I see people you know, speak to their children on the streets, like this very authoritarian sort of, you know, I'm the parent, I know best uh, mentality that I would never, that's an approach I would never want to take. So yeah, peaceful parenting. Absolutely. Yeah. And the reason I was thinking about that is um, because your question was to some degree about regret, about your your parents over support of you, if we can use that phrase. Right. Resulting in some deficiencies. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if you get comfortable and I do a tiny rant? No, that's fine. No, let's be honest. Medium rant. <laughs> Go for it. Oh, Jillian, you are a very, very good woman. You are a very, very good person. I'm just going to go with my gut here. And... I'm going to give you a bigger view than your 20s. I'm not going to pull the 40s card, the pushing 50 card. But I want you to look at these generations that go back to the point where we're dropping out of trees and starting to think maybe we can walk upright. Now, in that chain of being that has resulted in you at 32 with a guy you love, with children you want, and your commitment to not change history, to surmount history, to be the the ubermensch, the uh, the overman, the the overwoman, the, the, the not in reaction to history, not in defiance of history, not against history, but as if there was no history. And that's all human progress is. Let's pretend there's no history. Let's pretend there's no momentum. Let's pretend there never was slavery and it was never right. Let's pretend that women should have all the same rights as men and the same responsibilities. Let's pretend that we don't need kings. Let's pretend there's no history. Let's live like there's no history. Not to fight history, not to overthrow history, not to rebel against history, but to live according to rational values without history. Now, you said that your mother did what she did because her mother did what she did. Not true, fundamentally. Choice has existed for many thousands of years. But for whatever alchemical reason, whatever X factor around free will and free choice, maybe if your mom had listened to this show before she became a mom, if it had been around, it might have changed some things. But if you take a look at the larger picture, the human story, the story of civilization, the story of the species, you um, 
came from a very controlled and very verbally aggressive household. You have pursued and explored self-knowledge, Jillian, for many years. You are using this show as leverage to gain greater insight and greater control over your life and your choices. And your children will be among the luckiest in the world. Your children will be among the luckiest in the world, in the present, let alone in history. You know, in the 16th and 17th centuries, one of the evening's entertainments used to be you get a cat after dinner and you set it on fire. You just go out and catch a cat. It would be everywhere, right? Because mice and rats were everywhere in the cities. And that's where people grew up. There would be entertainments like you just go out, grab some popcorn and watch some guy get drawn and quartered, which was having... Or, or have him have rope tied to horses to each arm and leg and have him pulled apart in front of you. And people would cheer or hangings, beheadings. And this is really only a couple of hundred years ago in the West. Just today in Saudi Arabia, a man was sentenced to death for a, the crime of apostasy, which is uh, his, and he renounced his faith. And uh, he was uh, sentenced to death. Oh my God. And in the big picture of human history, and the contribution that you're going to make to the forward movement of that human history, your children will never have to struggle to parent the way that you parent. And that won't make them weaker. You know, like your parents giving you money, or may have challenged some of your ambitions or whatever. But the reality is that the strength that you will provide to your children through the overcoming and catapulting over history is a gift that will spread across the world down the generations. You have fundamentally changed the direction of your gene pool, which means changing the direction of the human story, changing the direction of history, changing the direction of the future. And I give you that perspective and will defend that to my dying day. I give you that perspective, Jillian, because I really want you to get at a very deep level, how unbelievably important what you're doing is. How fundamentally essential what you're doing is. What an unbelievable reversal of family history and family fortunes you are taking on, and I have no doubt you will achieve with spectacular flying colors. That's why when you earlier said, but I might want to do some more yoga or I might want to, you know, have, have a career. And I look, I'm not saying don't, I mean, you know, I, you know, nobody listens to me and they shouldn't, right? As far as do this or don't do that. And I hope I never tell people much of anything about that. But if you look at the tipping point of who you are in the whole history of your gene pool and what you have committed to and what you are going to offer your children and their children and the whole spread the whole wide searchlight of wide spilling sunlight that comes out of a good heart committed in particular to great parenting, what you are going to offer the world, what you are going to create with your boyfriend, your fiance, your husband, your children, their children, all the children they come in contact with, with whom their peace and their virtue will have an effect, a ripple effect. What you have changed 
and what you will change in the human story, in the story we will look at over the centuries, what you are contributing to the human story by changing foundationally and fundamentally where you came from and what you're providing to the future, you are a gorgeous ninja of infinite possibilities. And I really wanted to just make that case for you because why I asked you about regret in your 20s and so on because like all of us, we look at this day-to-day. We look at the little, and doesn't, I mean, the day-to-day is important. You know, you got to pay your bills and blah, blah, blah. But I really want to give you that perspective of depth, size, height, wisdom, power, and change that you are bringing to the planet. And you would bring that to the planet if you never had kids. You'd bring that to the planet if you just loved one guy. But if you are going to have kids and you are going to get involved, and when you have a kid, you you get communities. I mean, it's just the way it works. And you are going to spread that and you're going to talk to people and you're going to say, even if you never say anything, your example with your children will spread and instruct other people who maybe have never even, it's never even crossed their minds that they don't have to raise their voices at their children. Or maybe they thought that it could never work. Or maybe they thought that it was wrong to do that. You have to yell at your children because otherwise they don't listen. Yeah, yeah, because we all listen when people yell at us, right? We don't freeze up and, right? Yeah. And so what you're going to bring to the world, what you are bringing to the world, and everything that brought you to the age of 32, being ready if you want to start a family, everything that brought you here is an incredible gift to the future, is an incredible gift to the species, is an incredible gift to your children. You've already given a gift to your parents. And it is an incredible gift to the community that you're going to find yourself part of through the process of raising children. Now, you tell me a better way to spend your life and I'll do it. Wow. Thank you so much for that perspective. Uh, I mean, I know that like my boyfriend and I have conversations about your shows and just about, you know, these, those deep conversations, we have them probably at least once or twice a day. And, and the importance, like you reiterating the importance of setting an example and, and the reiterating the value that we're like bringing to the world is, it's really, um, yeah, it's really, uh, really important. It's really breathtaking to think about it that way. Yeah. That's just the only revolution that matters. And you're right in the front lines because you don't have a template. You don't have the example. You don't have a silhouette to push yourself through. You are right in the front lines of the greatest revolution, the most necessary revolution, and the only revolution that really matters. And uh, that is heroic. And that is breathtakingly powerful. Yeah, it really is. It just makes everything else seem so unimportant now. Well, that's not uh, not unimportant. You know, and I, I have to remind myself of this too. You know, I'm not sitting here floating on clouds. Oh, thousand year view of my life and my. I mean, I have to remind myself of that too because we all get dragged down in the mundane, and that's no problem. I mean, that's natural, but that's the kind of zoom out that we need to get to replenish ourselves from the everyday. The everyday is drains us. The everyday reduces us, and that's fine. You don't want to live in the clouds, but I think that the refueling, the oasis in the desert, is the perspective, the zoom out. And what you're doing um, 
with your boyfriend and, and what you're doing with your life. God, I mean, whatever you've done to get where you are is perfect. It's a lot to let sink in, but I really do appreciate the perspective and the whole zoom out idea is really important to remember as well. Yes, um, I, I say it to you to remind myself <laughs> as much as well. Listen, we've got a couple other callers. Yes. Will you let us know how things are going? Yes, of course I will. Thank you so much again, Stefan. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this stuff. It was very helpful. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for, for calling in. Uh, Mike, just before we get to the next caller, I've got to grab a snack. I'm low on fuel. <laughs> okay. Are you all snacked up, stuff? <laughs> I'm getting there. The first part is always me listening, so go ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, up next is Jeff. Jeff wrote in, and uh, his question is as follows. How is it that atheism escapes the grasp of the burden of proof? Isn't it the case that the burden of proof is based on the quote-unquote belief and not the existence or non-existence of the thing under contention? Obviously, incorrect examples of negation of a concept of proof require a burden of proof. I do not believe elephants can fly then the burden of proof is on who doesn't believe me. I do not believe giant octopuses exist. Then the burden of proof is on anyone who doesn't believe me. The negation of a concept seems to have no bearing on the burden of proof. Isn't it simply the belief or disbelief, i.e. the decision to believe slash disbelief, that creates the burden of proof? Hi there. Hi, how you doing? Well, how about yourself? Oh, well, thank you. I, uh, I really enjoyed your last two conversations, and I appreciate your time. Oh, I appreciate you calling in. Very interesting question. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's just because I was chewing, but I, I did have a bit of trouble following some of the um, the argument. Can you just give me a summary? Sure. Uh, essentially, the, it, it seems as though uh, atheists in general, and this, this is obviously a generalization, <clears throat> that... Uh, Atheists claim that they lack the burden of proof simply because they have a disbelief in God. And, and the fact that they disbelieve something is, is essentially, it, it lacks the burden of proof because of the fact that they disbelieve in something. So, it, it, like, I, like I was saying, you know, I do not believe elephants can fly, and because I don't believe elephants can fly, because I disbelieve something, it's my disbelief that lack that consequently I lack the burden of proof because I disbelieve something, which is inherently uh, seems invalid. It's it's not it's not the fact that you disbelieve something that you lack a burden of proof. Okay, I think I think I understand where you're coming from, but listen, I mean, where I go astray, obviously, just you know, bark in my ear and and set me back on the right path, but I'll answer it as, as I think the argument goes, and obviously let me know. Mm -hmm. Atheism and theism is not based on belief. Not based on belief. Belief is something on the in the category of epistemology, but or the, the study of knowledge, I, I could believe I'm a great dancer, right? I could believe that I'm an adequate dancer. I could believe I'm a bad dancer. I could believe lots of different things. But 
I don't think that that would be to say that metaphysically something exists or does not exist. Theism versus atheism is not a belief system. Theism is not a belief system. Theism is an objective claim that consciousness exists without matter, that life exists without birth or death or evolution or adaptation or creation, that consciousness, sorry, that materialless consciousness can exist for all eternity and is all powerful and all knowing and whatever. I mean, whatever is that. It's not a belief. Uh, people say, I believe in God, but, and that's a shorthand and, and a kind of a cheaty shorthand, shorthand. Because when people say, I believe in God, they are escaping the burden of proof. Because the, if they say, I believe in God, they're saying something that's true, which is they believe in God. Now, if they were to say, instead of I believe in God, if they were to say, God, or immaterial, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient consciousness exists objectively in the universe. Well, then the next statement would be, well, okay, it's quite a fantastical thesis, but I'd like to see your proof. But when people say, I believe in God, you can say, well, I, I accept that you believe in God. It's true that you believe in God. But God is not something that we... I don't believe in Everest. I don't believe in that two and two make four. Right? I, I don't believe that uh, there's uh, carbon dioxide in Earth's atmosphere. I don't believe in the moon. Right? Yeah, you're making These a things claim. just are. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, to believe in something is to put your belief first and foremost... And who cares what people believe? I mean, what I care about is if, if people are making truth, objective truth statements or claim statements about the universe and its contents, then they need to prove what they're saying. I th I think, now, I if think... somebody says, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, no, I, 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 that was the end of that part before I start another part. So if you had something to say about that part, then... Sure, yeah, I was just going to reiterate... Say it, you should. Yeah, I, just, I was just going to reiterate that I think um, my assertion um, still is valid um, just just with regard to making a claim um, that that then really, to, re, to restate what I said, that um, theists are making a claim uh, of God's existence and atheists are making a claim for God's lack of existence, non-existence, and, mm -hmm. and the same still holds true, that um, there's a burden of proof for either, that there's... That there's no, there's not. I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, but there's, there's a difference mm -hmm. between, between claiming that something does not exist, and that has to do with the possibility of its existence. So if I say, Jeff, I know for sure that there are no unicorns in the universe, anywhere. And let's just say, for this definition, unicorns are horses with horns on their heads, right? Can I make that claim rationally? No, you're talking about theists making a claim, right? No, no, hang on. Let's just stay with the unicorns, right? Okay. So if I say, Jeff, 
I can state with absolute certainty that there's no such thing anywhere in the universe that are horses with horns on their heads. Mm-hmm. Can I make that claim? Um, you can make that claim if you can prove the fact that you found a horse, that you can show me there's a horse with uh... No, no, no. There, there's no such thing as horses anywhere in the universe. They, cannot, they, they do not exist anywhere in the universe. Horses with horns on their head. I'm not trying to trick so no. you in anything. I'm just... No, sure. I, I can't so make no. that claim. So right? no. No, yeah. It is impossible to state with certainty that possible things cannot exist. By definition, they're possible. Right? Therefore, there, therefore, there is no, no such thing as atheism. I agree. No. <laughs> no, remember I said there are two categories, right? Well, so, because the reason why no, I say on. that... So, so, oh, and, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, so the reason, and the reason I can't say that is even if I were somehow to be able to examine one every billionth of a second, every content of every planet or every bot, and I could find that there were no horses with horns on their head, well, the universe is billions and billions of light years across. By the time I get to the end, one could have involved, evolved in the beginning, right? So, so it's completely impossible to ever logically say that possible entities do not exist. Yeah, there was one uh, clarification that I read just today, actually, on Wikipedia, which I, th- I felt was very um, what w- was very helpful, at least for me. It says, proving a negative, this is under uh, philosophical bur- burden of proof, it's under proving a negative. It says, if I can read it real quick, when the assertion to prove a negative claim, uh, when, a, uh, when the assertion to prove is a negative claim, the burden takes the form of a negative proof, proof of impossibility or evidence of absence. Now, now, under evidence of absence, it actually goes into more detail, and it and it says that um, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Right. Which everything I hear, everything I hear, atheism, atheists uh, attempt to claim is that absence of evidence is evidence of absence, which it's not. No, and I I agree with that. Uh, you know, right. I agree with that principle, of course, right. So for those who don't know what that means, and there's no particular reason why people would. Sure. Evidence of absence is not absence of evidence. Um, If I look at a room, a picture of a room, and somebody says to me, is there air in the room or not? Then I say, well, I can't see any air in the room. Of course, I can't see air. That's not the point. I can't see any air in the room. That doesn't prove that it's not there. Now, the, the room could be vacuum with no air in it. It could be in some abandoned space station or something like that, right? So it could be. So the fact that I can't, you know, I can't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. I mean, other, absence of evidence throughout most of human history, nobody could see x-rays, right? Yeah. Doesn't mean that they didn't exist. Infrared, et cetera. Couldn't yeah. see, you can't see radiation. Without a Geiger counter or without something that translates it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. So I'm, yeah, absolutely, I'm fully down with all of that. I mean, I, I think in the same regard with what you just said, um, that it's effectively very difficult or impossible to, to prove atheism. I don't think that that relieves it. No, 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 I didn't say that. I don't think no. that relieves it of its burden of proof. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't absolve it. No, 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 I didn't, I, didn't say, I didn't say it was impossible to prove atheism. What I said was that you cannot rationally say that possible entities do not, do not exist anywhere in the universe because they're possible. And you can't possibly verify that simultaneously that some entity does not exist anywhere in the universe because of the limitation of the speed of light. Right? 
that's why I think atheism as a whole is a really... Um, no, no, you keep bringing atheism into it. I'm not doing that yet. <laughs> so um, what are you referring to then? Okay. M- make a, a different inference. So possible entities may exist. The question is, is a deity a possible entity? That's all it comes down to. If a deity is not a possible entity, then we can with certainty say that it does not exist. I think that's one of the trouble, uh, that's one of the difficulties is the classification. Um, from, from my experience, and, and I don't mean to generalize if, you know, I th- think you uh, consider yourself an atheist. I don't mean to sort of project this on you necessarily, but it's been my experience that it's sort of a simplification um, for atheists to refer to God as a deity and that, that, that the two are interchangeable, which it really excludes a fairly large variety of theists. You know, my, my, I googled it, and there's like 4,200 different gods, uh, as I understand it, per Google. Um, so it's hard to say that all gods are deities. Um, I think that that's one of the misconceptions, much less um, that all gods are, you know, that all god are mono, you know, that, that are monotheists, and or all gods are Christianity. Um, I think a lot of theists actually tend to, or atheists tend to whittle down God to just um, primarily the easy target. Um, is sort of how I see it. Um, it's like if I if I can, yeah, I'm, I'm look, I, I I can't speak to other theists, uh, atheists, or what they say or what they do. And sure. So far, you're just saying that there's a problem with simplification and whittling down, which I think there is. Right? According think, to the language, is it's like saying something is, is an oversimplification. It's like, well, I don't know. But what I can say is that sorry, go ahead. Like what you just said, excuse me. Like what you just said, you you um, associated God with a deity, and I don't think that that necessarily is accurate. Um, there are. Gods that, what is the difference between a god and a deity? Um, and the reason I use deity is that because when I say god, people usually translate that within their own mind to be their particular sure. deity, right? The Christian god or whatever it is, right? Their their particular conception of it or that what they've been taught. Sure. And so deity is a bit more of a neutral term. Yeah, I, I guess I think of it as, you know, some sort of person. Um, and I don't know if that's how you're referring to it as. Um, I, I'm, I've mentioned as part of my email that I'm a pantheist. Um, so my personal... Uh, yeah, listen, I'm, I'm sorry, but we, we're just drifting off topic here. And we're getting into language stuff, which is not part of what I'm arguing for. So okay. I don't mean to just say it's got to be about me. But let me finish my argument and then we can sure. take it from there. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, can one reliably say that nowhere in the universe... Is there a square circle? Yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm trying to think of two things: your your question and its correlation to to atheism. But um, no, no, don't don't try. That's 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 trying to figure out where I'm going, and that's going to end up with you not being in that particular conversation. <laughs> okay. Can we? So a unicorn, like a horse with a horn on its head, could absolutely exist in the universe, and we, we cannot ever say that it doesn't. And be honest. Sure. All right. But can we say that nowhere in the universe is there a square circle? I would say no. Uh, you know, dimensionally, is it is it feasible? Uh, I don't know. No, because it, it, it exists in, its existence is contradictory. You cannot have a, something that is both a circle and a square at the same time. 
Okay. Because a square has right angle corners and a circle has no corners. Okay. So things which are possible cannot be denied. Absolutely. Life on other planets. Is it possible? Statistically, it's it's a certainty. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty much a virtual, complete and total certainty that there's life on other planets. And uh, so we, we can't say there's no such thing as space aliens. Yeah. But we can say that there's no such thing as square circles. And so the question okay. is, do deities or gods or whatever you want to call them, do they exist in the category of unicorns or do they exist in the category of square circles? Now, if they exist in the category of unicorns, then we say, well, they could be possible because horses with horns on their heads could exist. But nobody has the right to say that they do exist because they have not been established or proven. Nobody has the right to say that they do exist and nobody has the right to say that they do not exist which would be the um, agnostic position, right? I am space alien agnostic, leaning very much towards there, there, right? And they'll come yeah, in malls, uh, mall ships, because it's only the free market that will give them that, that capacity to go between the stars. So uh, I am agnostic to um, the vast majority of things that are proposed as existing in the, um, in the universe. Um, fairies may exist, right? I don't know. I mean, there could be, I don't think in this world, but, you know, the, the, these things which are not rationally impossible can never be denied potential existence. But things which are rationally impossible can very much be denied and with great certainty, rational, uh, empirical existence. That's why two and two will never make five. I believe... I'm no scientist in this, but I think that the idea that you could have mass without gravity is a contradiction because mass and gravity are two sides of the same coin. I think the idea that you could have a square circle, I think that all of these kinds of things um, are not possible or that matter can be either created or destroyed. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm having difficulty because it feels like you're sort of uh, framing framing it from a monotheistic uh, perspective. Uh, doesn't, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, no, forget the monotheism because now you're going back to your polytheism, right? So it doesn't matter if the argument is mm -hmm. that consciousness can exist without matter. Why is that it? is false. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So there cannot be consciousness without matter. Therefore, there cannot be an immaterial deity. Therefore, the deity has to have solid form. And therefore, the deity, in order for anyone to claim its existence, they have to produce it. Right? If I say something which is detectable by science or our senses exists, however improbable it may be, well, then I need to produce it. Now, if I say that something which is potentially possible exists and I cannot produce it. That does not mean it does not exist. It simply means that I cannot claim that it does. It just could. That I can't, that I can't fulfill the burden of proof. Yeah, because if you say um, you're referring to theater. some super, uh, super dude, I called him in an earlier show, some super dude, right? Somebody from uh, some planet around Betelgeuse comes and he's got a sort of crazy 
technology that's indistinguishable from magic and he can roll plasticine into snakes and breathe life into clay and all this kind of cool David Copperfield stuff. Well, uh, he could do all of this stuff. We can videotape it. We can talk to him. We can uh, touch him. You know, he's got physical, tangible, material existence. And so even if he can teleport around, you know, you can still see him and all that, right? So if somebody says the super dude exists, then it's like, okay, well, show me. And and if he can't show me that super dude exists, doesn't mean super dude doesn't exist. Just means he can't say that he does because he hasn't proven it. He can't, can't just show it, right? Now you're referring to, to theists, not to atheism, because atheism has the same burden just in the negation, right? A, no, atheism has only the burden to dis. Well, atheism cannot disprove the existence of potentially valid beings. So then, the question is: so then the, Is a god a potentially valid being? And the answer is, at least according to, I mean, unless you want to invent a god that's basically just a super dude, gods do not have existence because they are eternal consciousness. So prove it. Without matter. So prove it. You have a burden of proof. You have. A, you have to. No, I don't have the burden of proof. No, because that's like me saying, it's like you saying, well, Steph, you have to disprove that uh, you, you have to prove that square circles aren't valid, but the very concept disproves itself. It's, a pr- it's proving a negative, is it not? Is it, isn't it pr- no. proving a negative? No, you're, listen, you're ne- Jeff, you've ne- got to follow this argument. There's two categories of things, all right? One category is things which could exist, and no rational atheist would deny the potential existence of things that could exist. Proving a positive. Because they're potential. Yep. There are, on the other hand, the category of things which logically are self-contradictory and cannot exist. Proving a negative. Nowhere in the universe will two and two make five. Nowhere in the universe will a square circle exist. How is that not? Because the concepts are self-contradictory. How is that not proving a negative? The concept disproves itself. A square circle is a contradiction in terms and cannot exist. The only way you can say that the concept disproves itself is by making a vast amount of assumptions about what I mean by God. You're, 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 you're whittling down the concept of God to fit the purpose of, of having it disprove itself, which makes sense. No, make, I've, makes I've already gone through sense. this. I mean, no, I mean it I've makes already gone through this. from an argument perspective. Why you, and te- why you want to Jeff, is he, if he's material and tangible, then you have to prove him. And if you can't prove him, you can't claim that he exists. You, I can't claim that some, some super dude, some space alien with vastly advanced technology, but I can't prove such a thing doesn't exist. But you can't claim its existence unless you can produce it. I'm not whittling down the concept of God. I'm saying either the concept is self-contradictory, consciousness without matter, or if you add matter into the mix, then you're making a claim about the existence of something material, in which case you have to prove it. Now, if you can't prove the existence of something material, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means you can't claim that it does. I can't claim that it doesn't because it's a potentially real thing, and who knows, right? But those are the categories. So, so atheism is not a negative. It's not the non-existence of God. It's something... Well, you see, we're just going round and round in circles here. If God is consciousness without matter, then atheism doesn't have to lift a finger to disprove the concept because the concept is self-contradictory and disproves itself. It's a square circle. If it's consciousness with matter, then it's a potentially existing being. Atheists can't say that such a being doesn't exist, but those who believe in such a being can't say that they can until they, that it does until they produce it. I mean, do you believe that uh, the beings that you believe in, do you believe that they exist materially? Uh, they, <laughs> you're, you're referring to a deity already. Um, what should I, it? 
Do you believe it exists? Yes, it would be a better description in my opinion. Um, All right, and does it exist materially? I think it's part of us, yes. I think it's part of the universe. I think it's dimension to the universe. It's not something that can be disconnected from it. I think it's kind of effectively sort of part of the glue of the universe that holds it together. That holds it together. That's not answering the question, does it exist materially? Uh, does it? No, not really. What, does a dimension of the universe exist materially? That's like saying, does time exist? Well, I guess you could say it exists. Does time exist? If time doesn't exist, but it can be measured. Um, yeah, I suppose so. You know, the, the sequences of things uh, and their relation to each other, right? Life, life can be measured. I think life is part of God. Um, personally. Life is part of God? Yep. I don't quite understand what that means. I thought you didn't like the word God. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a term. Um, don't have a better... better but these are, these are just words, right? There's nothing, there's nothing testable in what you're saying. But uh, this, this, to me, is part of, part of the difficulty with atheist perspective is that it's, it's about trying to dismantle any theists um, claim versus trying to make a claim of their own, and that's that's no, 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 no. That's sort of the you fundamental. You said life is part of. You said life is part of God. I don't even know what that means because you told me that God can mean a bunch of different things, and you're saying life is part of God. I might as well say yin is part of yang. I mean, there's no way to parse that out philosophically. That's all. I said. I said that that many people have a different perspective on on God. That my my interpretation of God is not the only interpretation of God. Um, yeah, back to again. What you're saying has no capacity to be examined from a philosophical or rational standpoint. Okay, um, I mean, I can I can clarify my personal personal opinion on on what God is, but like I was saying, I think that's well. No, no. See, when, now the moment you say God is, God exists, God is real, then it can't be a personal opinion. <clears throat> if I say it's my personal opinion that two and two make four universally. I'm contradicting myself, right? Because I'm saying it is my personal opinion that everywhere and forever, two and two make four. Well, no, I'm claiming a universal absolute, not a personal opinion. Now, if you have a personal opinion, that's fine. Sure. I like Pink Floyd, right? Um, but that is not a universal truth statement. I, I wouldn't claim that I have a universal truth to make. So um, I, I have what I what I think I understand, and that's as best as I have. So. So you're describing preferences or ideas within your head, nothing that exists subjectively outside of your mind, right? No, I don't think so. I think it exists. I think we have we have the ability to observe it. I mean, my opinion, um, like I said... Uh, wait, wait, wait. No, see, you, you keep... My opinion. If you say we have the ability sure. to observe it, and then you go to my opinion, okay. those two things are not the same, right? Okay. Life exists. Um, life wouldn't exist if it wasn't for something that coheres it. But like I said, I don't think that this really has anything to do with atheism. Atheism is the negation of a concept, um, and I don't, I don't hear, I don't hear where your description um, resolves it, resolves that truth. It's, it's, it has a burden of proof because of the fact that um, you have to prove the fact that God doesn't exist. I mean, unless you're, unless you're saying, like I said, unless you're saying, if I. If I sort of condemn God to this box, and I can sort of interrogate God inside this box, uh, and 
diminish God down to this, uh, you know, confinable space. By doing so, I can then, uh, disprove it through, uh, the fact that it's, it, it, it contends with itself, that its mere existence doesn't exist because it's provably impossible, like you're saying. But without doing that, if you say, what if, uh, if God does exist, then you, as a atheist, have a burden of proof because you're claiming that God doesn't exist. Well, see, here's where I think we have to draw things to a civilized end, because I've made an argument for three categories and uh, different categories of existence, and you're basically just saying exactly the same thing <laughs> as when we've started. So I think I'm going to have to move on to the next caller. I mean, if you want, I've got this arguments laid out more uh, in the free book called Against the Gods? Question mark? Question mark? Actually, I think there's only one, mm -hmm. uh, which is at freedomainradio.com slash free. It is, of course, free. Uh, you might want to check out that book. And um, But yeah, I, I, I get when, uh, unfortunately, we're throwing words across the canyon that uh, doesn't seem to have any catcher's mitts in it. But I do appreciate the call. It's always invigorating and interesting to talk about these issues. And uh, feel free to call back in if you want to take a plow through the book and, and tell me, you know, give it the highlight where you think I've gone wrong. I think that would be uh, greatly appreciated. I know it would be. So uh, thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate the conversation, but I do have to get to the next call. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, up next is Mario. Mario rolled in, and um, his question is... The Mario did what? <laughs> Mario wrote it. Did he roll in? I rolled in? <laughs> I think that's Super Mario. I think that's... Yeah. He rolled in, yeah. ripping his plumbing shirt and a whole lot of stars. My, my grandson thinks I wrote uh, Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> right. All right, well, Mario wrote in... Um, with the concept of a solution is tied to the concept of problem definition. If the problem cannot be clearly defined, the concept of a solution is meaningless. Unless you know what the problem is, how do you know you have solved it or even if there is a solution? Can there be a solution as well as costs and benefits associated with that solution? All right, you win the most abstract topic of the night. And after Jeff, that's hold on, hold that's on. quite something. I, I probably need a couple of minutes to recover from Mr. Jeff. I, uh, whew, boy, talk about entanglement. Um, well, yeah, that's the challenge, right? Is well, that um, yeah, it is. It, God, God can be anything to anyone, and and therefore whatever you put definition in, they just say, oh, it's not that. Right. Oh, did you shoot? And that's not there. No, it's not there. No, it's not that. Right. No, it's not that. It's okay. Well, you just keep moving, and I'll get to the next caller. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I, All right. So you're saying, can there be a solution without a definition of the problem? Uh, well, uh, two things. I, I'm responding to your uh, podcast entitled "There Are No Solutions," and I noticed that uh, four or five podcasts later, you talked about the solution to climate change, and I'm thinking, what? What didn't he just say? There are no solutions. Um, so. There's really uh, very little in your podcast about there are no solutions that I disagree with. What I'm concerned with um, is I know, uh, for example, in your conversation with uh, Peter Joseph uh, way back, uh, one of the things that you kept pointing out is that he kept inventing new words for old ideas 
and he used uh, old words for new ideas. And, you know, to your credit, you kept pressing him on that, you know, and it, I think you referred to uh, one time calling it a word salad, which I think I agree. I agree. I, I could. I, I'm always I'm always concerned when people use a lot of lingo right. without stopping to step people through it. Right. But that's why I'm a big one for a critique of Socrates or a praise of Socrates that he tried to speak in the language of the common people. Right. And uh, he did not use epistemology and metaphysics and all that sort of stuff. And um, I, that's what I've always I mean, I'll use them occasionally, but sort of try and strive for that. Um, I, you know, if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. It's always been something that I've been <laughs> concerned about. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I think your your categorical categorical statement that there are no solutions doesn't make sense to me. Uh, you know, uh, as I mentioned to Michael, I, I'm a retired scientist, and we dealt with solutions all the time. Yeah, alcohol is a solution. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Well, actually, it can be if you define. I know, I know, if, I know. If your problem is you are in too much pain, uh, yeah, alcohol can be a solution. Uh, but I, I, there are two, I, I think, two things uh, about that statement. Uh, one is that um, you can't talk about solutions unless you can define the problem. And number two is that I don't think solutions and the concept of cost benefit are mutually exclusive. I, I think they're both. There are solutions with cost benefits. Or you know, costs and benefits, I should say. So I can't, I can't agree with you that there are no solutions. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, I wasn't talking about everything in life. I was really particularly talking about politics, and I was also, in particular, talking about political economy, which is why the examples that I provided were uh, really around a welfare state and stuff like that. Um, so the idea that there's a solution which doesn't involve a cost in economics is uh, false. I mean, everything is a trade-off. Everything you do is everything else you're not doing. You know, I mean, you, I'm sure you know all that stuff. So, um, but, um, so, so the, the use of the word, there are no solutions. I didn't mean there's no solutions to the problem two and two, what a two and two make, right? Or do gases expand when he did or whatever, right? Um, there are solutions, there are answers to those, right? Um, so there are solutions to math problems, there are solutions to scientific problems and so on, but with regards to resource allocation, political economy, uh, there is nothing that is just going to go and solve a problem. Everything has its costs and has its benefits, and that is um, what's important to remember. And anyone who tries and sell you... So when I was talking about global warming, there is a solution to global warming, whether it's true that this cloud whitening or... Um, whether it's uh, diminishing the power of the state or all the other things that I was talking about, um, they will solve the problem of global warming, but all of them have costs and benefits. Like, for instance, $323 billion has been spent since the 1980s to combat global warming, causing a damage to the world economy of approximately $7 trillion. And if shrinking the size and power of the state is the answer to global warming or, or climate change, that's going to be very costly <laughs> to a lot of people who are making a lot of money yeah. from fear-mongering this uh, particular Well, um, I think that, that's where I have the problem. And again, I, I'm coming from a very, you know, in, in some people's opinion, a very narrow-minded approach. But 
the problem with war, uh, global warming, I don't think the problem has been defined. And, you know, there are those that um, say, well, global warming is primarily a human cause. And there are, are those that say, no, it's not a human cause. It's a, it's a cycling thing, you know, sunspots and all that. But we can't talk about a solution to warm, you know, to global warming if nobody can even define the problem. Well, but there's a reason for that, right? I mean, there's a reason why the problem is not defined in a way that's very rigorous. And that's because there are, there's lots of arguments that um, say that the, the problem that global warming is supposed to solve is funding for people who like to study and talk about global warming. <laughs> right? well, I mean, so it's solving that uh, problem very nicely. And this is why the, the empirical disproofs of the climate models and the CO2 amplifications and all of that uh, just um, it, it doesn't matter uh, because it's still fulfilling its purpose of scaring people into handing over money and power to politicians, scientists, and, and uh, ad, uh, environmental activists and, and all the people who like to chest thump their self-righteous uh, pillows. Um, it's doing that nicely. So um, anything which tends to last, if it doesn't fulfill its stated agenda, is simply fulfilling an unstated agenda. Yeah, I, and I agree. And I think I can make the same uh, statement about the whole uh, religion thing. You know, I, I often, when I, when I listen to atheists, you know, like the previous caller, who uh, tried to use, you know, the avenue of reason and logic and rationality, but my questions are more of motive and opportunity and ability. You know, I don't question people's reason because people can come up with reasons for all sorts of things. I, I tend to question their motive. And when you can get that clarity, uh, a lot of things make sense. And I think what you just said addresses motive. Right. Right. And I, I, I didn't want to get into the question of why his belief system was the way it was, because people have a tough time examining their own belief systems for psychological causes if they think their belief systems is true, are true. Like if somebody said to me, what's your psychological motive for believing that the earth is a sphere? I'd be like, uh, the fact that it is a sphere would be one of the motives which would not be specifically psychological. Um, or, you know, if people do believe in some particular deity, you say, well, what's your psychological reason for believing in that deity? Well, they'd say, well, no, it's just, it is, right? It's real. Right? There's no psychological reason for two and two make four. And so because he was, um, because Jeff was, and he, like, anyway, because Jeff was very convinced of his belief system, there was no point asking him for motive, if that makes sense. Well, I don't know. I, I would be interested in his motive for there, there's a fellow, for example, uh, who has a podcast. He calls himself the Thinking Christian. And uh, I once made the suggestion that that was an oxymoron, and, and particularly the way he's using thinking. But when I look at his background, you know, his revenue comes from donations from his flock. His prestige and his status in his community comes from his position as an apologist and i'm i'm more thinking that it's more about that than anything else yeah it certainly could be i, I remember seeing a presentation once 
by a fellow who ran a charity that helped to transition priests who had lost their faith out of their profession. Because there have been a lot of priests who, over the time uh, of their time in their priesthood... The clergy project, right? Yeah, and it's a very difficult thing. There's a, a great... Uh, John Irving, I'm not a huge fan of his novels, but his allegory and images are fantastic. He once talked about a man walking through a field with a the watery bullseye of a flashlight which when you think about it, it's actually a beautiful way. And he said that uh, there was a priest, um, uh, the, something about the lilies was the name of the book, something from that song. And um, it was a priest who'd lost his faith. And he said his face was like a stink insect climbing up the tiles of a bathroom with this water running down. It just eventually lost its footing and <laughs> fell. And uh, it's tough. Uh, you know, it's tough. I'm sure that the same thing is true the other way too. People who have um, reputations for atheism, atheists do sometimes become theists. And um, I think it's, in a way, easier to go the other way because you have a sort of pre, uh, a pre-baked audience and perhaps even donations for that. But to go from a, a priest who's lost his or her faith, uh, it's, a, it's a great challenge. Uh, and uh, there are some very material motives. And also there's not just material motives, but, you know, you think of all the people you've married. Yeah. And what are they going to think of their marriages or the people you've buried or the people you've baptized? Or they're going to say, well, was he believing or not when he did it? I mean, there's a great deal of um, weighty responsibility that I think these people feel, yeah. priests feel for That's you. the yeah. flock. See, I, I, I went in and, and out of a very fundamentalist uh, Christian sect called the Church of the Nazarene. And I think I was 50 when I was converted. And, you know, that that's a whole story in itself. And after about seven years of study, you know, I learned Hebrew and learned Greek and I could read the Bible and I had Bible studies and all that. That that actually worked in reverse. <laughs> I, I began to see a lot of things, a lot of dots that just did not connect. And by the time I was 57 and I'm, I'm 60 now. By the time I was 57, I thought, you know, I, I can't be honest and believe this stuff at the same time. I mean, my honesty compelled me to say, I can't buy this. And, you know, so at some point in my life, I had to choose religion or honesty, and I, I chose honesty. But I can see how tough that can be on somebody like the pastor, you know, who I you know, became friends with, you know, how tough that would be on him to do something like that. I mean, I, I didn't have that much to lose. I lost, you know, a few friends. I lost a community, which I think was really artificial anyway. Uh, yeah, but some, something like a pastor, I, I, I just, <laughs> I, I, there's a, uh, a low-budget movie I saw once years ago. I think it's called The Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. And uh, there was a scene in, in the bar there, and, and this old man comes walking in, and these two fellows were looking at him, and he said, do you know that guy? He said, oh, yeah, he, he's a miner. He's, he's been mining for like 40 years, mining for gold. And the guy said, well, if he's been mining for gold for 40 years and he's got, he hasn't gotten any? He says, yeah, that's right. Why didn't he quit? And he says, well, because if he quit, he would have to admit he wasted 40 years of his life. 
and he thinks, well, the odds of the odds of every next pan have got to be going up. Yes, right. right. It, 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 right. In other words, it's it, it's more acceptable to believe that maybe the next one is going to be it than to admit that forty years of his life was spent in illusion. You know, and I, I think a lot of these uh, clergy, I, I think, is it, it's they're in that position, and I, I think that's why it's, it's so tough. But also, I mean, the the faith of most religions accepts and allows for doubt. At least the wiser religions allow for doubt because it gives them the flexibility. If people start to doubt, they say, well, that's part of the process, you know. Well, it depends. Now, you know, it depends because Christianity has such a huge range. You know, it's a spectrum. You know, there is a in, in Romans 14, for example, Paul says, he who doubts is damned. You know, and, uh, you know, it's like verse nine in that chapter, if you wanted to look it up. So there are those that say, no, you, you know, you can't have doubt. You know, doubt is something that uh, the devil does. But then there's a, another sect of denomination that says, yeah, doubt's natural. You know, you, you can doubt. Uh, you know, it's, it's OK. You know, God forgives you for all that. So <laughs> you, it depends on what sect you go to. No, that's that's true. I mean, that's that's the other uh, the the salad bar of uh, whatever you want to believe, right? As I said before, the religions that survive the most often become at least those that don't conquer by the sword. But those, the religions that try to conquer by the word, as Christianity has to some degree throughout its history, they have to have enough to appeal to all personality types, which is why people say, well, the Bible is self-contradictory. It's like, no, because it's designed to be cherry-picked by each personality type to fit its own innate preferences. Yeah, I, I, Ayn Rand, I think, referred to them as the, the mystics of the mind, right? And uh, yeah, you're right. I, <laughs> that's why I spent five years learning Hebrew. And, and the reason I did was I thought, you know, the English version so full of inconsistencies, I thought that couldn't possibly exist in the Hebrew version. So when I was able to actually read the Hebrew version, it was just as bad, <laughs> you know. And, and I thought so. So, but you're right. What, what occurred to me is the Bible is the the Rorschach test. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's a literal Rorschach. You know, anybody can see in it what you want to see. Well, and of course, the Bible is pre-selected and presented to particular groups. There are not, well, I don't know the, the number of, of Christians who have read the entire Bible. No, that, that's, I have. that's one of the reasons. You know, I, I had a list of, uh, of items that I call observations, and uh, I was amazed at how little Christians read their Bible. And I, I found that most atheists actually know the Bible better. And oh, yeah, that was one of uh, Winston Churchill's sons, Randolph Churchill. Had a terrible relationship with his father, but he did he did say uh, when he was at, at war, I think, and he read the whole Bible because there's a lot of hurry up and wait in, in the military. And he just was rushing around saying, can you believe what's in this thing? Are you kidding me? Whereas, of course, most people, they don't they don't read it cover to cover. Yeah. They, uh, you know, RYFM, right? They don't read it cover to cover. What they do is... Um, you know, it's pre-selected and prepared and, and delivered to them by the priest or by the storyteller or by the book or by the myth or whatever, right? Yeah. The parables are all, you know, and the, the priests know how the audience, right? If they're full of gentle people, they'll get lots of gentle stories. And if they're not, then they'll get different kinds of stories. But the idea that you'd sit there and read through it all yourself is, for most people, kind of incomprehensible. 
Well, and that's why I go back to the issue of motivation. I mean, uh, uh, a pastor, you know, let's take somebody like Rick Warren, you know, who wrote the 40, uh, 40 days of purpose or the, no, the purpose driven life. Purpose driven life, yeah. I think. If you read that, I thought book, it was. The, I thought it was the gel driven dust jacket, but apparently I was incorrect. But go ahead. Yeah, but oh, if you read that book, it's. I, I really had to force myself to go through. But it, it, you know, I talk about just patting you on the back and reassuring you of how important you are and you know how much you matter to the world and you know it, it, that's. But that's motive. See, to me, that's motivation. It's not reason, and that's why I keep saying. You know, a pastor who is successful is going is motivated by, you know, giving what the giving his flock what they're willing to pay for. So, you know, it's uh, but, you know, when you were mentioning the Bible, you know, I wonder how many people even realize that Thomas Jefferson, for example, referred to the book of the Revelation as the raving of a madman. You remember that? Yeah, it's a drug trip. Absolutely. Yep. It makes heavy metal look like a documentary on ants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's. Um, but anyway, that's that's a long ways from my uh, solutions. But I, I, I understand your, the, the um, what you were proposing, that there are a lot of people that in the domain of politics, you know, believe in this illusion that there's this ideal solution where no one has to pay anything you know and and i understand that but i think in general the term of that there are no solutions um you know that's not true as a categorical statement it's true with the caveat you know that you know yes i think that's that's certainly valid there are no solutions in the realm of political economy in particular but yeah i mean there are certainly solutions to math problems and so on i certainly will will accept that yeah um, listen, I mean, great, great chat. I'm just um, running a little low on energy. I had a pretty, yeah, pretty I'm, early morning I'm let you go. this morning. Yeah, listen, great chat. Feel free to call in any time. A real pleasure. Sorry, go ahead. Keep up the good work. I enjoy your uh, programs. I, I, can, I plan to continue to support your, your work. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And uh, it's your support, my friend, that is why we're doing and able to do what we're doing. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to all the supporters, those of you who donate and who share. Um, and um, I really, really appreciate uh, appreciate it if you can share the videos, if you can go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out in this dry and dusty February of dissolved fiat currency. Uh, I would really appreciate that. You have, I guess, two days after this come out to do it. So freedomainradio.com slash donate. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful night, everyone.